gods and lasses and those who don't describe their gender. Welcome to the Pot of the Dragon Podcast. I am your host, Lee. I am joined by Spencer. Spencer! Say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Woo! Spencer! Episode 3, we've had a couple days to digest it. We did a reaction pod. We were both fairly positive in the reaction pod. I think specifically in the reaction pod, you really focused on the fact that your favorite parts of the episode were not necessarily the Stepstone battle. It was the sort of palace intrigue stuff going on around the hunt. How do you feel now that you've had a couple days to marinate on the episode? I think I've gotten only stronger in that view. Um, I think the stuff in the middle part, I say the middle, but it was like the center 80% of this episode was just stellar. It was great. It was wonderful character work. It was wonderful dialogue. It had some great symbolism. It was some really fine material that they offered. And the stuff at the very beginning and the very end, I think it worked. I think it was at times, you know, exciting. I have some qualms about it. I think those qualms may have increased on a couple on a couple other watches. But I think on the whole, we've got a great episode. I just... I, what we were advertised for was the Stepstones, and I ended up liking the other stuff even more. Yeah, I can say that right after the episode, I was telling you this was my favorite episode they've done. It was extreme. And, and, and that... It is still probably the best episode they've done. I've cooled on it just a touch. Just a touch. Because I think that there are a couple plot elements that are confusing that I think if you do a close read don't necessarily line up or make sense. And this is the first time I'm saying this about the show because I think Ryan Connell's <laughs> done a particularly good job of keeping things consistent. But there are a couple things where I think we can draw we can we can question some of the consistency, specifically around Dragon Riders and Grayscale, and we'll get into both of those as we go. Which I think is heavily focusing on the beginning and the end of the episode, which I, there, there is much to discuss, there is much to analyze, and I'm sure we will have a spirited debate on the, on the question of, did this make sense? Absolutely. Well, here we are on the Pot of the Dragon podcast. We are a Mangum Talks podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, if you like listening to us gab every week about Pot of the Dragon, you can check out all of our stuff by going to your favorite podcast platform, heck, even the one you're listening to right now, type in Mangum Talks. M-A-N-G-U-M space talks. We are also at mangumtalks.com. It's where you can find all of our stuff. Spencer and I review a boatload of stuff. We've reviewed Game of Thrones, of course. We do a bunch of Star Wars stuff. We just got done with Obi-Wan Kenobi. We do Succession. We do Ted Lasso. We do a lot of really good television. And we've done a few movies here and there as we go along, too. Most recently, we uh, have gotten into a bare-knuckle fist of cuffs about the prequels, the Star Wars prequels. That's over on Mangum Talk Star Wars. That's the podcast feed, Mangum Talk Star Wars. So if you enjoy this podcast, please check out all of our other stuff. Spencer, I think that's the housekeeping. I think it's time we get the episode. What do you say? I'm ready, sir. We shall start with, like we do every podcast here on Pot of the Dragon. When we are doing a full review, we will start with a recap, which I will lead. I will do the recap beat by beat as we go through. Then we'll go into our segments. We'll do best line of the episode. Then it'll transition to me where I will pose the question out to the ether, out to the universe. Anybody that will listen, is Game of Thrones back? And then mm-hmm. Spencer will talk us through at a spoiler section uh, differences between the books and the show. And when I say spoiler, I just mean for people who have read Fire and Blood or The Rogue Prince or any of the material of the Dance of Dragons to let you know where this story is going to go. So if you don't want to be spoiled on where this story is going to go, that's the section to bail out in. We will do our level best as we go through the rest of the podcast, not to spoil, spoil anything for you and to really just limit it to a show only review. So, Spencer, we start out with a recap of the previous episode. Lots of Damon. Lots, Lots of, Damon, of Damon. Which we expected. They want to keep Damon in the forefront of our minds because this War of the Stepstones is ongoing. We also got some Sir Kristen Cole, which I found interesting. We did, which proved very relevant for this episode, but 
yeah, Kristen Cole's a player, but he needs to remember going forward. And then we get into the intro. And here's what I got to say about the intro. The more I watch it, the more I like it. I have had the opposite reaction. Because even now, knowing what it is, I look at it and go, man, they could. I know what you're going for now. You could have done it so much clearer and so much better. Okay, so one thing I like to do is I like to judge things on what they are, right? Sure. Like, and base it on what the thing is, as opposed to what, in my mind, a thing could have been. Because everything that ever existed always could always have been better, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I I try to, like, look at the thing and say, what is it, as opposed to what isn't. It's also a very good way to analyze basketball players. Uh, just a brief aside. Uh, <laughs> what can they do, as opposed to what can't they do? And what I've enjoyed is that there are a lot of little Easter eggs in that intro. I mean, I particularly, I pointed out one to you this week. You uh, had a very ice cold reaction to it. It was almost a, why are you even bothering me with this text? But it was the the cut <laughs> to Rainey's, which is right after Aegon and his symbol, the very first one. You get a cut to Rainey's and Meraxes and the bolt through Meraxes' eye. You did, yes. Uh, which I just thought, like, that, that little nugget, that least drag, I didn't catch it right to start with, but if you know the lore, you read Fire and Blood, I think there are a lot of them. I think you also get one when you get to Magor the Cruel, which is a pretty, I don't know if you saw the little medallion for Magor the Cruel, that one's really interesting, and then how the blood flies away from Magor the Cruel in all directions. It, I don't know, there's just some Easter eggs there. Um, could they have done it better? Uh, absolutely, they could have done it better. I'm not going to argue that. But the more that I watch it, the more I appreciate it, and the more I see that there's a lot of stuff in there for the book nerds. I, I fully accept that. I wish they made it uh, just a little less opaque. I wish that they'd say even just given us like little nameplates underneath the little circles so you can more clearly tell who they're referring to or whatever else. I wish that they'd make that they'd livened up the color a little bit so it's just not black and gray and hard to see at times. I know what they're going for, I know its purpose, I know its relevance, and I approve of all that. Even if I don't like it at all as much as what the original intro was able to accomplish and the excitement of watching that week by week. But, there's just reasons with respect to clarity that I think that there's ways that could have gone about this objective better. But, I fully acknowledge what they're going for now. It was not apparent to me, or eh, 95% of the viewing audience on first watch, but now we understand. Yeah, I mean... I think the tough part about the intro is always going to be that people are always going to compare it to the original. And what we have to remember is that the original Game of Thrones intro is the best intro in television history. (laughs) So it's kind of tough to to make make that the the barometer. So uh, the episode actually starts and we get a a flag, which is a horse with a mermaid tail. You know what that sigil is? House Valerian. House Valerian. Then we see, and that, that flag is burning, and then we see the crab feeder. A couple things in the crab feeder I want to point out here. One, as Spencer, I think, really well pointed out in the previous episode, he is not a physically intimidating presence. No. He doesn't look like a fighter to me. He looks like a, just a regularly built guy. He doesn't look like he has a lot of great nutrition, to be honest with you. He looks like kind of flimsy, um, which would make sense considering his history. And he's got two things, primary things going on. I just want to make sure people aren't confused. One is he has grayscale. So all the red and the, the weirdness around his skin and his eyes that you see, mm-hmm. that's grayscale. It's the same thing Jorah had that my man Samuel Tarley in a very scientific, very believable way cured. Cut, cut off and rubbed cream. Genius. And then the second thing is the what's going on in his face is not grayscale. That is, he has a mask that is a precursor to the Sons of the Harpy mask. 
that Danny had to deal with. So these are like religious zealots out of Essos that at some point the show version of Kragos Strehar has aligned himself with and that that fa- that mask is a precursor t- in that organization to that mask. Ryan Condal specifically said that. I'm not making this up. This is what the creator of the show said. Interesting, because I was just interpreting it as all kinds of Phantom of the Opera style, of where he's just wearing a mask for the sake of hiding his disfigurement from the, you know, either spreading or prior survived case of grayscale. We will debate the shit out of that later. And I feel uh, like both of those work, right? Because what you're saying, that, that could have worked perfectly. Like, hey, man, I got a disfigured face. I'm just going to throw this mask on. I also think it works that somebody with the traits that personality traits that we have seen him have might be involved in some religious zealotry that also tracks for me. So I think they both work. It's really interesting. You also mentioned that, you know, Ryan Ryan Condal said, I've had three separate people now say, I really wish the showrunners would stop talking so much. It's it's interesting in terms of, because at the end of the episode, we get an extended little piece from the showrunners where they discuss the episode and discuss the things, whatever else. I've had several people say, man, I really wish they wouldn't include that because I feel obliged to watch it, but I'd prefer just to have my own thoughts. So it, it's been it's interesting how many different people I've been hearing that from now. So don't like watch, they're doing so, a lot so more. So then I think the answer to those people very, very easily is don't watch it. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think that, like, they really don't have to watch it. There's nothing there. That, that furthers the plot. The show is over. This isn't a Marvel movie where you're waiting at the end of the credits for another scene. It's just the people talking. Don't I, watch it if you have that opinion. But I, I will say the original showrunners gotten a lot of credit for, gotten a lot of trouble for that. Remember, Danny just kind of forgot the Iron, the Ironborn. Like do, they, do I remember? Do I remember that? Yes, they have yes, a I lot. Do. Yeah, they had a lot of problems with that too. I have only watched a. I don't typically watch that because I like mm-hmm. to draw my own conclusions too. I only learned about what his mask is through Twitter because people people were asking the question on Twitter and then someone posted, oh, they talked about this in the post show. That's the only reason I know because I don't I don't typically watch it for the reason you talked about. Mm -hmm. So there's a person being nailed to a post by Kragos Drehar and this person is telling him House Valerian's coming for you. They're going to get you. And then we hear something. Drehar turns around and then we see a dragon with a very long neck. Is that Gorexi's music? That's right. I absolutely adore every time this weird eel slash bird of a dragon is on the screen. It just kind of floats like a Chinese dragon through the air, and while at the same time makes weird bird chirping noises. It is just the most otherworldly thing they've invented for this. I'm here for it. It seems to me that if we, we dump ourselves into this fictional world, we obviously make ourselves dragon riders, we obviously make all the dragons available it seems to me that you're jumping on Caraxes, isn't that right? Uh, well, you know, given his temperament issues, eh, eh, maybe. But in terms of just visual appeal, it would rank high. Because I'm obviously jumping on Vagar. I mean, we all know that. I'm the biggest <laughs> Vagar fan. Assuming Vagar can successfully can successfully take off. But, yeah. But the thing I think about every time I see Caraxes, and I especially thought about it in this scene, is that long neck really gives huh. him, like, a strategic advantage. That other yeah. dragons don't have. He can whip that thing. It almost seems like <clears throat> he can whip it around like in a 360. Like he can like look behind himself and fire. Like that's something that like Drogon did not have that same sort of spray angle. Yeah, th- th- this is like, you know, original World War One tanks that were just forward facing and they had to turn versus somebody decided to put a turret on the top of the thing that could rotate. Caraxes is the dragon with the turret in terms of his, you know, field of view and range of attack he's got. Yeah. So the dragon lands and Caraxes' foot steps on the guy who is 
you know, cheering the fact mm-hmm. that Prince Damon's arrived. Spencer, I want to give you just a second to talk about why that did not work for you. Well, it's just what they were going for. You talked about it as being demonstrative of the fact of how little Damon cares about his people. I'm with you. That no, 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 no. Not necessarily. That 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 that, that it, might be misstating a little bit. It's just that he's not necessarily there to save the little guy in that moment. I'm not saying that, he doesn't care about his people writ large. It's not not his priority. Yes. What's better way of saying it? And I think that's what's what they're going for there. The issue I have, and I think this is borne out in terms of YouTube comments, is. A lot of people thought this was meant to be funny. That this was meant to be a shocking little moment and have a chuckle. Several people like YouTube come saying, oh, that was the funniest thing ever. I loved it. I interpreted that as an effort at humor, and my eyes rolled out of my head when it happened. I will say Uh, this. If it was an attempt at humor, I I categorically don't like it. If it was what I thought it was, which was just like a really visceral reminder that the little guy gets caught underfoot from time to time. Haha, <laughs> see how I'm still writing that high school yes, newspaper? Yes, yes, bravo, well done. Um, then I like it okay, then it's not it, so bad for me. It's the timing that frames it as humor for me, where he's just like, save me, Damon, and it immediately gets squashed. If they were going for it to being dramatic, whatever else, I think they should have timed that better in terms of the lines, in terms of the build-up and reaction of it being explicitly horrific or tragic or just indifferent violence, rather than being timed as almost slapstick. And it, Again, that may be unintentional on their part, but I don't think I'm alone in viewing that as being an effort at humor at the start that came across as jarring. I can agree with you on the timing part. Then we get a scene of Damon Damon on Craxes. Craxes is now on the ground, and he's just sort of walking Craxes through this camp, and he's laying waste, laying waste, just burning everything, incinerating everything, calling for Drehar, calling for Kragas Drehar, come out, come out wherever you are, and the Triarchy then shockingly enough, starts to fight back. So one of the differences that we see here in the, this entire battle that I think we're going to see in pretty much every battle sequence that we get in House of the Dragon is that dragons are not smack of cold water like absolutely a shock to the system yes. the way that it was with Danny, right? Like when Danny attacked the Lannister army, they were not trained, they did not come up with the idea they would ever fight dragons. But everyone in this world is aware that they might at some point fight dragons, right? So there's a little bit more preparation to deal with them from the armies than we were getting in the original series. And that's by design. And so they kind of had a plan here. And they, they they rocked Damon a little bit because the archers started, you know, shooting the the bolts that had fire on them and they started to kind of sort of hide the individual footmen started to hide kind of in caves or in the protective areas and they were able to really push damon out of the area yeah i fully agree with both your points i for one i absolutely agree with you and it's a wonderful point to point out that this is a world of where the free cities used to be valerian colonies it's it's not that long ago necessarily i mean like 200 years since the doom of valeria they still have roots and records on the subject of dragons and dragon riders. Much less have been dealing with the idea that the Targaryens have them, and there's been tensions and kind of skirmishes on that subject in the past. So it makes perfect sense they'd have a certain degree of knowledge and a certain degree of preparation, particularly since, in this case, they've been fighting Daemon for, like, what, three years? So the better part, more than two at this point? They've had an opportunity to build into the fact that these guys have dragons, what do we do? I also loved, with respect to their tactics, of, hey, they're effective. It's just like... We can't, we don't have the resources, you know, like, or permanent implements to necessarily hurt Caraxes, but Damon's just there on top, let's shoot the shit out of him, and they do. 
I also love just the idea that effectively Damon, with the most modern military weapons possible, is being defeated by guys that are hiding, hiding out in caves that are firing little plank shots at his, you know, aerial aircraft. That is so, like, you know, modern warfare in Afghanistan or Vietnam, kind of the best military in the world is defeated by the locals using just, you know, caves and, and hit-and-run tactics. I like that that's being brought in here. Well, George obviously had some real-world examples that he was drawing from with how the Dornish fight. Because there's, there's some parallels with how the Dornish fight the dragons sure. and how Kragas is fighting the dragons, which is basically... Taking notes. Exactly. You stay in caves, you don't get very far from that cave, you come out, you shoot the dragon, you jump right back, right? And that's what mm -hmm. the Dornish have done, that's what Kragas is doing here, and it's very effective. I will tell you that Danny just kind of forgot about the Ironborn, always has me scared that one of these dragons is just going to fucking kill over in these scenes. I know better than that, I've read the books, I know Caraxes survives this, but at the same time I was still like... When they started firing, I was like, oh, God, please don't, like, have that that big turret thing. Yeah. That fucking, what? the guy, like, that that, it, that would just kill him, like, immediately. Like, I, I don't know. They've, they've just trained me now to be very worried about the safety of the dragons. Well, in some ways, Kragos' strategy is working as a means of attrition. It's not really working as a means of taking out these weapons, just because he can't set them up. He can't, like, you know, fix a permanent turret on the side of this cliff because Caraxes would just destroy it. He kind of has to just whatever he can come out with quickly. Now, on his ships, the free, the, the Triarchy's ships have various means to shoot at dragons, but they're mobile platforms, and it's not something he can do right now, given that he's got House Valerian's navy constantly surrounding and bottling him in. So, this is the best he can accomplish, but in terms of a long-term war, seems to be working. Yeah, Kragos is not a stupid man. He's aware that he's fucking with the shipping lanes of the Valerians. He's aware that's pissed off parts of Westeros. He knows the relationship between House Valerian and House Targaryen. When his men yell dragon and he looks up and sees a dragon, he's not shocked. He's calm. Yep, oh. he's calm. He's prepared for this. And that, that kind of informs what we see from his army later in the episode. Very much so. Then we got to King's Landing and your favorite character, Hobart Hightower and Otto are talking. <laughs> While watching the king interacting with a group of folks at a feast with his young boy present. That's uh, right. That's who is that big, toddler? It's interesting how they do these time jumps because I think at the end of the last episode, folks who didn't know where their story is going, haven't read the books in any capacity, were arguing about the idea if he would have another boy, would it be a girl, would he even have children with Allison? They don't bury the lead they just jump it's so interesting that they decided to do this there's no drama to it they just jump right to first time we see Viserys he's got little leg on boom he's got a boy there you go I'm curious your thoughts too I actually found this time jump less jarring than the one in episode two this felt a lot more natural of just how I suddenly like oh there's the toddler I'm with you I'm in the moment of the progress of time rather than have to do like a little narrative background of oh Damon's been in Dragonstone for six months and this felt so much more organic how they portrayed it, where we were able to immediately put two and two together just from the images they gave us, rather than having to have narrative to fill in the gap. I can agree with that. I mean, the the, the visual of the child makes it pretty apparent how how much the time has jumped. That that makes it easier to pick up on. I would agree with that for sure. Mm -hmm. Hobart says that the young prince. So Hobart is talking to Otto, just the two of them off to the side, watching the king. L Lord Hightower versus his younger brother. Yeah, Hobart Hightower is the elder. And he telling Otto the young prince is only two, but he has a kingly presence. Now, I'm going to tell you this. There are multiple moments in this episode where I believe Hobart Hightower looks like a clown. Mm -hmm. Like he just sound like he, he's trying to will something into existence 
which is Aegon is going to be the king so much that he, to me, just sounds like a buffoon. And he does to Otto, too, because Otto says, he may yet, brother, but this morning he insisted on eating porridge with his hands. <laughs> hey, just got to say, PSA, I fucking hate Otto Hightower. Fuck Otto Hightower. I have to say it every episode. Yeah, it's a good line. It's a very it, good it, line. It, it, it's a great line. And I like that the two of them are, it's to some degree, at odds here. Because Hobart is just... We've talked about Otto being smug and like his well-earned grin at the end of episode two that everything came together for him. Hobart just runs on the damn smug. He has power. He knows he has power. He feels like he's winning at all times and he wants to let everybody know it to the point that Otto clearly finds his older brother grating. He finds his just inherent, almost self-delusion at the security of his position just frustrating. And he's almost trying to nettle his brother on the subject of it. But Hobart does not give a shit. Hobart from his perspective is one yesterday and he's waiting for you to find out that he did. And you can see that going into his philosophy with respect to this. It's just that like, hey, we've got a king now. We're in charge. Everybody should recognize it. Well, I was trying to get him on. This is a 20 year plan and it may work and I need you to understand that right now. Hobart laughs and says Aegon will grow. Hobart then says they'll soon have more to celebrate. Otto is confused. Hobart says that it's Aegon's second name day. So ding, ding, ding. There you go. That we've had about a three year time jump mm-hmm. because Alicent might have been pregnant by like a day or something, but she wasn't like visibly pregnant when we left her. Mm-hmm. And so she had to have the nine months to, and then also the two years that Aegon's been alive. So it's around three years that we've time jumped. Hobart is saying, that Aegon's, quote, infancy is behind him. I didn't know that that was a stage. I didn't know it was like, oh, infancy's over now. He's into adulthood. He's two. I mean, this is a kind of a medieval concept of where the rates of infant mortality were just so high that if you made it to two, you had good odds of making it through the rest of your life, or at least significantly better. But before then, they're always just kind of expecting, eh, you may be dead tomorrow. Don't Isn't worry, that I've got the, six more. the same thing with, like, if you could make it to, like, 18, then your chances of making it to, like, 65 were pretty good. It's still true. It's still true. It's just, it was much more extreme than just given the rates of both infant mortality and also risk to mothers and giving birth. Yeah. Uh, uh, Hobart tells Otto that it's left to him to get Viserys to name Aegon heir. Hobart says it's quite simple. He's the king's firstborn son. Otto, great quote here from Otto, potential line of the episode. I don't know that his grace sees it so clearly. Which is a really, it's foreshadowing of things to come in the episode. Otto, for all of his faults, knows Viserys very well. And he's cautioning his brother. His grace doesn't see this that clearly. We got, we got work to do here. I, I love the perspective that gives us into Otto because we could, we've not really seen Otto react off somebody other than like Viserys and his daughter, which doesn't really give us the best lens to the guy. Seeing him react with his brother, he comes across as so much more realist and rational than his brother is. And that gives us a bit of an insight towards his measured pragmatism going into how he goes about his decisions. This is a wrestling move. So if you have a heel who has come out and has said, you know, all your women are ugly, all your men are fat, like, I don't like your city, there's no good restaurants. But... As the program moves on, this, this Bill Burr, the wrestler, <laughs> that this this kind of like a, a cheap way to get heat, you know, on a, on a heel. 
Mm-hmm. As the, as the program goes on, if you want that heel to start moving toward the face camp, the only thing you have to do is get somebody even more evil than him. So what you would do is get somebody to come out and maybe kidnap one of the ringside managers who are helpless or Kick beat up beat up somebody who's hurt. Exactly. That sort yes. of thing. This is kind of what they're doing here, I think. Because you've talked many times about how they're trying to give us reasons to sympathize with the green. Well, the mo- the greens, which is the high towers, which is Aegon's side. The more that they can put Otto around Hobart Hightower, who is even more insufferable than him, the more sympathy I will gain for Otto, knowing he's the second son. Yeah, and that's the key detail, is that it really just frames that Otto is a guy that's trying to find, find power for his family. But to what degree is he actually in control? We saw, like previously, that he was writing a letter to Old Town. We didn't know who it was for, and I think this episode pretty directly implies he was sending it to his brother. Which leaves a lot of questions to what degree. Is he steering this ship, or is he just following instructions from on high? Hobart ends the scene by telling Otto that it lies with him to make Viserys see the logic of the fact that Aegon, firstborn son of Viserys, should be king. Mm. Cut to Tywin Lannister. So we're, the, the, the Lannisters, Lannisters are back. The Lannisters enter the chat. So here's this thing about the Lannisters, right? We get two primary Lannisters here. These twins, are, apparently. Twins. Tyland and Jason Lannister. Tyland Lannister is reasonable. He is the reasonable. new master of ships. Because Corlys mm-hmm. Valerian, when Viserys spurned his offer to marry his daughter, and also told him he wouldn't help with the Stepstones, when Viserys fucked off, went to Driftmark, Driftmark got Damon, started a private war, he stepped down as master of ships. So Tyland, of Lann- Tyland Lannister is the new master of ships. Jason Lannister is sort of the cut-up, sort of the fuck-up of the family, he he's not Tyrion level, but he's on the spectrum. Very much so. It, it's one of those things of where I think this is actually a change from the books of where Carlos had actually gotten pissed like well before the start of events. Like he'd gotten pissed that Rhaeny, that Rhaenys didn't become queen of the Seven Kingdoms. But I actually kind of like this change in the show of where he, he is directly in King's Landing and directly associated with events longer. Delaying Tywin Lannister becoming master of ships, but I think it's a change that makes sense given the Sea Snake's importance. Yeah, in the in the books, there 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 isn't as much emphasis on the fact that Corlys and Rhaenys were really pushing to have the series marry Lena. It's there. There wasn't there what yeah, but it wasn't wasn't quite the same amount. Instead, there's a lot of lingering tension, which gets gets referenced. Give the show credit; gets referenced on the show a lot. There's Absolutely. a lot of lingering tension from the fact that the old king Jaehaerys. This is this is what happens in the books. The old king Jaehaerys passes over Rhaenys. And makes his first makes his firstborn son, not her, his firstborn son, Balon, the heir to his throne. Balon dies, they have the great council, and then they she gets passed over then, again. Then she gets passed over again, but in the books it's not she's not offering herself to be queen. Instead it's her infant son, Lenor, that she's offering to be queen while she's queen or king while she's queen regent. So it's just slightly different in the books as to how it's done. But either way, um, there is a lot of dislike uh, to Viserys, his decisions, and his grandfather Jaehaerys from House Valerian. Absolutely. He approaches the king, and he's giving, this is Tyler Lannister, he approaches the king, and he's giving an update on the Stepstones. He says that the crab feeder has dug in for siege on Bloodstone. Now, what's interesting here is that the king is clearly trying to eat himself some roast pork, some grapes, Mm -hmm. As He's one just does. chilling, just trying to hang out. And Tyland Lannister, Master of Ships, so this is his this is his lane, is like, I will not let this go. Like he's like 
bordering on pissing the king off, but to him it's important enough that he continues to press the matter. This is continuing a trend of what we said before. Viserys Targaryen has the best small council in history. It's just... Except for maybe Bran. No, and you hurt me. Um, No, I argue that Bran had a really good really good small council. We've gotten to see this small council in action far more than we ever saw for Bran, to be sure. So we have direct evidence that the small councils we've seen, even Otto Hightower to a certain degree, self-interested as he is, are really dedicated to their positions and are really trying to convince the king to do a good job. And from Tywin Lannister's perspective, yeah, the sea snake is pissed off. Yeah, that's not really our fleet anymore. But it's the royal fleet that's doing the fighting because he's half the royal fleet, and I'm not letting this go. Yeah, and like... It's not surprising to me that he has a really good small council because this is the height of Targaryen power, meaning mm-hmm. more people are bought in to Targaryen rule. The Targaryens and, and Westeros are richer than they've ever been. There's more dragons as there ever, there's ever been. There's more people with Targaryen blood on Westeros than there's ever been. And so there's just less of the shit that Robert was dealing with, which is like people <laughs> questioning rule. Like nobody is questioning the Targaryens' rule here. They might question... Viserys specifically, or, you know, but no, everyone thinks Targaryens should be kings at this point. Yeah, they, so they he's have, got a lot of people bought into the concept. They don't really have a concept of there being an alternative. The Targaryens are the Seven Kingdoms, the Seven Kingdoms are the Targaryens. This is the way that I serve the realm. That's going to come about later due to a variety of events to think that they are more loyal. <laughs> level of disloyalty and level of backstabbing is only going to increase over time. Viserys, Tylan continues, Tylan Lannister continues to push this issue, and Viserys finally says it's waited three years, it can wait another three days, telling us that the Warden Stepstones has drug on for the full three-year gap. Viserys then tells him, all to eat, fortify yourself for the journey. So what we're getting here is a hunt, a royal hunt. Mm-hmm. Lionel Strong tells the king, everything is set to go for the hunt. They'll be expected in the King's Wood by midday. King's Wood, very, very close to King's Landing. It's just a little jaunt over to the woods. It's easy, easy enough it's to get It's the Royal there. Forest. Yeah. Back to Tylen Lannister, who brings up the Stepstones again. He gives a more detailed update. That with the Triarchy's men in caves, the threat of the dragons are blunted. He's trying to tell him, hey man, like, it's a big problem because the dragons aren't helping. Our nuclear weapon doesn't solve this problem. And House Valerian is bleeding men and Viserys even brings that up he goes well don't they have foot soldiers and Tylen goes well yeah they do but a lot of them are leaving because it's fucking There's three years and they're failing and a lot of them are swords and mercenaries which we well. talked about on the reaction pod which is the fact that House Valerian isn't king he can't command people to be in his army he typically has to pay them and people who are being paid if they don't like the job a lot of times they take another job which is exactly what's happening here and he doesn't really have that that much in the way of like houses sworn to him to have men at arms. He's the ruler of Driftmark. He runs some islands that are next to Dragonstone. He is really goddamn wealthy. But in terms of like landed gentry titles and people that he can draw resources from, he's pretty limited other than what his cash can buy. Yep. And Tylen says that a lot of these people are leaving, and apparently Damon has been driving the men hard. Now, mm, when they there. first planned this, when they first planned this war in the Stepstones, the general plan was for the Sea Snake to command the ships and Damon to command the men. Mm-hmm. That was generally the plan. 
you can tell that by the time we get to where we're at now, it shifted a little bit because Damon has done exactly what Tylen Lannister mentions here. He's pushed the men hard enough that a lot of the men don't want to answer to him anymore. And mm -hmm. so you see the Sea Snake more and more having to be involved in parts of the War Council that are, you know, discussing the actual mercenaries, the actual foot soldiers. Yeah, so it's just all, it's all proving the point that Tylen Lannister is making here, which is that Damon's in a lot of trouble. He is. And it's a good point for you to make that what we see later, the War Council is run by House Valerian. Damon barely shows up and his role was to punch the shit out of a messenger. They're the ones that are actually coordinating strategy. They're the ones that are coordinating resources, that are managing logistics. Damon's just here to ride a dragon and provide an emblem. At least that's the, what they've come to view him as based on their checkered record of success over the last three years. Yep. Tylen says that if ever the crowd were to intervene, now would be the time... Otto always, like a like a spirit animal, sensing that his buddy is in a bad mood, jumps in. Every time He's his buddy's there. in a bad mood, he knows how to jump in. He jumps right in. Damon and Lord Corliss started their war without his grace's leave. Were he to intervene now, after so long, it would make the crown look weak. Spencer, do you agree with that? I don't no. know that I agree with that logic. No, it, it plays to what Viserys already believes and Viserys' natural inclination not to get involved in wars regardless of the justifications for doing so. But I don't buy that at all. This really, as we see later, this gives the crown the opportunity to get an easy victory and appear a hero. Damon's done all the work. Damon's the one that's been fighting him and bottling up the grab feeder for the last three years. Now the crown can just get in and get an easy victory and get the hell out. This is perfect for crown PR. I completely agree. I don't really understand the logic of if I help now, I am weak. I don't, I don't know where that, where that connect is. The king is irritated and he says, can someone tell me where in the seven hells Renera might be? So what we get, we get a sense that like Renera is not being particularly helpful, uh, lately. Uh, the king, we could get that by the king's attitude. It w would Viserys be one of those modern helicopter parents that would get a GPS chip installed on his kid? Yeah. And, uh, I think that Renera would be like one of the Westworld bots cutting it out. Like she, there's no way she would allow such a thing. In a heartbeat. Cut to the godswood and Renera is reading and a jester is playing and I'll be goddamned if I didn't pray, pray, hope, you and believe that this was Mushroom. I really hoped it was Mushroom. Mushroom is one of the many people whose account is being taken into consideration when the fictional maester is writing Fire and Blood and the do, fake history that is Fire and Blood. Do, do, I think we actually get this guy's name. I think, I think the queen refers to him as Samwell. So Samwell, yeah. To, essentially, he's a living, breathing iPod shuffle in terms of how Rhaenyra is using him right now. But, sorry, man. Mushroom. I'm not sure he's an iPod shuffle. He may be one of those like old-school like single-song cassettes <laughs> because she only wants to hear one song and it's about the 10,000 ships. It's about Nymeria. It's about the story we've already heard about before. She apparently likes the song about Nymeria. Well, you know, she likes her vinyls in her room with all the black posters. I love that we get Rhaenyra is just a straight-up angry teen this episode. Because she is. It's what she represents. She has long-term goals and causes, and she wants to be queen. But at her heart, she's an angry teen who doesn't know how to necessarily go about bringing any of those things to the fore. They do a really good job of portraying someone who is dealing with adolescence, with all of the hormones that come about in adolescence, all the confusion, all the angst, anger, depression, sadness, all of that stuff. She's dealing with it all. But where she differs from the kid down the road from your neighbor in your neighborhood mm. who is, you know, struggling with being a teenager is she has legitimate fucking complaints like that are real. 
Uh, and yep. it's, they're not imagined. Uh, Viserys, as you pointed out very well in the last episode, is not doing what he should do to position her as heir. He has, he is absolutely... It, it's unforgivable. Yeah, he is absolutely dismissing her in a way that undermines her position as heir and I think is also overtly sexist, I, I believe what? it is. I think it's readily apparent because the only... We see him engage in actions this episode, and there's implication he's been doing it for the last three years, to solidify her position and bolster her power. What is his way of going about that? Marry her off. That's his only idea. Doesn't invite her to small council meetings, doesn't train her on the politics of ruling, doesn't let her, you know, have an active command or even serve as an, uh, some aspect of regent or, you know, aid to the court in any way other than cupbearer never cross his mind, but marrying her off to somebody else somewhere else, that's his plan, and that's the only one he's going for. Now, he's not wrong that that's a way that she can go about doing that, but the fact that's his only arrow in his quiver tell, speaks volumes. It's absolutely sexist, because there's no way that to position a male as heir, the only, thing he, would be, the only thing he would be thinking about is marriage, right? He'd have a whole host of other things he'd be trying to do. Now, he starts to get there later in this episode. And we'll talk about it when we get there. A bit, but it's baby yes. It's really baby steps compared to where he should be. Well, the, the two of them should be talking every night. She should be, like, directly advising him and discussing and unpacking that r- aspect of ruling the realm every day. But A, Viserys doesn't enjoy ruling the realm. And B, this episode kind of suggests, like, the two of them haven't had a conversation that lasted more than ten words in maybe three years. You can kind of think of it like the relationship between the president and the vice president, right? Like, we've had many presidents that just kind of lived for the day, didn't really think about what was to come after their administration and didn't really include their vice president an awful lot. Mm -hmm. And we've also had presidents that did a lot of concrete planning to position their vice president as As the the successor. And it's very, you know, it's very telling when you study the different administrations, which side people land on. And Viserys is just not doing his role right now to position her as the heir. Uh, Queen... Allison shows up. Looking lovely in red, I must say. You think she looks lovely, huh? (laughs) Yes, I do. The eight-month pregnancy was a bit of a surprise that, man alive, she is in the process of making new heirs, you know, immediately. Yeah, Yeah, she's, she is really pissing off the ghost of Emma Aaron here because she's just pumping babies out. I'll tell you, the second baby is going to be a girl named Helena, just Mm -hmm. spoiler alert. Um, so the jester stops playing and says, Your Grace, Rodera jumps in. Did I say stop, play it again? They have a bit of a, a tete-a-tete, a little power struggle here they on do. trying to get the jester to play versus getting the jester to stop. Queen Allison finally pulls rank. Guess what? Queen is higher than princess and the jester leaves. I would, I would debate whether the queen should necessarily be higher than princess, but the fact that no one debates it should speak volumes to Rhaenyra about how marginal her position is when she is the heir. Queen is higher than princess, I'm sorry. Like, but it is. Queen, queen is not necessarily higher than heir, though, given that the queen eh. does not, have, has mixed ruling authority compared to the king. Eh, I don't know. I, I, th- I if I was a jester, I would, I'd be listening to the queen, I'll tell you that. Um, even if it was like, even if it was like a, a designated heir, like a like a Rhaegar or someone like that. That was the example I was kind of thinking of. Yeah. Anyway, one thing I want to point out here is that it's pretty apparent what they're doing in the show, which is that when the reveal that Viserys does and says, "Hey, I'm going to marry Alice at Hightower," Rhaenyra looks hurt. It looks like she's been hurt for these three years that they've not gotten along. That is not how. That is a very big difference from the books. Like in the books, it's portrayed that they that Rhaenyra initially dotes on Alicent, what? 
it, and they're and she's happy. That, but they weren't childhood friends in the books. Like that. That's one of the changes we've talked about in the first two episodes. Here is that they've made they've aged them such that they were like childhood friends. They were not childhood friends in the book. And so there was a honeymoon period at the book where Renera and Allison got along. We're not getting that at all on the show. And I appreciate that they made this change and adjustment. One of the frustrations I had, particularly with the later seasons of Game of Thrones, is where they'd make a change but not really ponder out what other effects it would have or where... where, where Butterfly what other effect. Yeah. I mean, they'd make a change but then give the character the exact same conclusion with no differences between the two, and it didn't feel like it worked due to how much they changed the character before them. Making this change that, A, Rhaenyra is just older than she was in the books at this stage, and B, she was a friend with, with, with Alicent... It makes a lot more sense that this would be their relationship and they didn't have any kind of, I'm so happy to have a new mommy given that I'm seven and my mom just died kind of thing, versus I'm a teenager who has goals and you're interfering with those. Yeah, absolutely. So Allison says, hey, look, here's the deal. King wants you to come on the hunt. Mm -hmm. Can you please come on the hunt? And she's like, no, I don't want to come on the hunt because I want to stay here and read. I don't think I'm needed. And Allison goes... Yeah, but the king really wants you. And she goes, is it a command? Allison says, yes. But he doesn't want it to be a command. And she's trying to make that point while Rhaenyra storms out. And she actually ends it with, none of it needs be this way in truth, Rhaenyra. So, Allison's well, still trying. Yeah, I, I point out the difference in the books because I can't draw from the dynamic in the books to inform what I'm expecting here. I just have to gauge what I'm seeing on screen. And what I'm seeing on screen is... Renera mad at Allison, Allison trying to mend the bridge, trying to be friends with Renera. Yeah, that that seems in character from what we've seen of the two so far, and I sympathize with them. I don't. The main person I blame here is not either of them. There are uh, there there are other powerful men in the situation that are driving the two of these two apart in a way that is unfortunate and unnecessary. Cuts everybody leaving for the royal hunt. Viserys, Allison, Aegon, little Aegon, two year old Aegon. Renera and some caregivers for Aegon are in the royal wagon. Renera asks Allison if she should be traveling in such a condition. Very, very, Fair very pregnant. She says, well, the maesters told me the fresh air would be good for me. Uh, whatever. Uh, okay. Viserys said that she'll be, she, being Renera, will be with child soon. And it will make him a proud grandsire. Renera gives him a what the fuck look. Like it's a, it's totally like a, like she smelled something bad. Like a, what the fuck was that shit? Yeah, I, I like I like Allison too. The moment he says that, just kind of looks at Rhaenyra as like, oh shit, did my husband just really say that right now? Yeah, Allison trying to make peace tells her, well, it's not so bad being pregnant. Rhaenyra says, absolutely nothing. Viserys is upset by this. Tells her that she should go with him on the hunt that day. Rhaenyra says, I'd rather not. Potential line of the episode. Boars scream like children when they are being slaughtered. I find it <laughs> discomforting. So she's trying, so in telling her dad, th this is so pithy. I love it. I love the, I love it. I love the patty. Mm -hmm. In telling her dad, I don't want to go hunting with you. She hearkens back to the, what they were just talking about. Kids. And drives home the point that she doesn't like kids, doesn't want children. And in doing so, Makes it clear that she finds her brother annoying. Like it was a it was a world class comment here. This is a triple combo in terms of effectiveness of this hit here, to the point that even Viserys can't take this per can't understands what she did and takes it personally. You know, in Mandalorian, when Mando like touches that thing on his wrist and it just comes Little out and kills screaming everybody birds in the room, or whatever they're called. Yeah, screams, yeah. That, that's what she did with this comment. She oh, just insulted everything and everybody. It, it was it was well done, Renera. Mm -hmm. He asked her how she'd like to participate. That, man, that is such a fucking dad move. When yes. you're frustrated with your kid and you just go, 
okay, what would you like to do? Like, I'm out of options here. And she says, well, I don't see why I have to be involved. He says, well, you have to be involved because you're my daughter. You're the princess and you have duties, Renera, as I am ceaselessly reminded. Renera then says that no one is there for her. And this kind of cuts off the conversation. And that gets, she finally, like, the, the thing is, as petty as Renera is being, and as difficult as she is being, she does at least give you some truth in the conversation. She explains why she's upset, which is, I'm supposed to be the heir, but look at who you're celebrating. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't have the emotional maturity necessarily to, you know, positively or constructively going about addressing what she's feeling right now. But the reasons that she's feeling it are perfectly legitimate. And it's really on her dad that he hasn't talked with her or reassured her or done anything to bolster her confidence with respect to where she is and what her position is. It's on him entirely. They arrive at camp, and it is quite a camp. Boy, this is absolutely no season one of Game of Thrones. The budget. This is a Look at royal the hunt, my friend. Right, no, true I, I, royal hunt. I feel like this episode was just a very, very direct apology to George, who has expressed how frustrating he found the four people wandering through the wilderness at the season one Kingswood hunt was. Well, this because is it gives the impression... If you were to just watch this and not have any of the context about how they produce these shows, you would think that Robert was his his kingdom was much more poor. It was and that's not well, th- yeah, but that's not like maybe the entire kingdom was. Well, I'm but King's Landing, the Red Keep, what was around him, like he wasn't a poor king. I know, I, like I, that's kind of crazy. Like, he, he, he's not literally a, you know, a guy in a mountain cabin that just grabs his two sons with the shotgun and goes out hunting, which is the impression that we got of him, his brother, a guy with the wine, and I think there was also a member of the King's Guard. That was the entire trip. Barristan Selmy. Barristan was there, that's right. Um, I do, I'll tell you this though about the camp. I find it hilarious that it's big enough for a big communal buffet to just be out in the middle of there. Yeah. And I also find the King's tent itself just ostentatious and ridiculous. I, I, I want to know what surf was, was re- required to transport all those damn statues and vases and set them up every time they erected the tent, the cost, the expense, the opulence that is just being thrown around. It's perfect. It's a wonderful visual for the nature of the, of the realm. The King is cheered as he arrives in his Royal, wagon. We see Lionel Strong there with his two sons. Let me introduce you to Lionel Strong and his two sons. One is Harwin Strong. He's the he's named Breakbones. Breakbones. He's the one that can walk. The other one has a club foot and his name is Larry Strong, which they call Larry's club foot. Mm-hmm. Both of these guys will be very relevant going forward. Keep track of these two dudes. And yeah. of course, Lionel Strong too. We've seen him before, but he's still very relevant. There's a reason I'm introducing you to him. Yeah. Cut to Viserys exiting the carriage, Hobart Hightower, in full lack of self-awareness of how stupid he sounds, goes, hail, hail to Aegon the Conquering Babe. Yes. It's like, oh, God. Shoot me now. That is, like, so transparent and just pathetic. Ugh, I hated it. I mean, that's on the verge of, like, you know... In some ways, I find that even more offensive than the, it was the Baratheon that referred to uh, Rhaenys as, you know, the queen that never was in the box, and Viserys just kind of shrugged it off. This is like, you know, declaring for the king who his heir is in a way that I would find personally offensive if I was Viserys. 
Aegon, the, the, the conquering babe. Yeah, he it, conquered a all, lot at two years old. Yeah, it's also sure. just stupid. It sounds lame. Too. It just sounds lame. Cut to his, uh, and he says, "Here's to his grace on the second name day." Uh, everybody cheers for Aegon. Rhaenyra doesn't even leave the carriage during all of this. No, sits there. That was perfect the way she just stews there alone. She hears the cheers for everyone other than her outside. Cut to her eventually walking into the royal tent. She looks around. Ominous music playing, matching her mood. The king is being dressed and whatnot. Fly, looking dope. The king does look good, I gotta tell you that. Fresh to death. He looks good, and at least at this stage, he actually looks like he's having fun in a way we've so rarely seen him so so, so far in this show. That's about to change, though, because he sees Rhaenyra, and she is unhappy, and he does not like that. Rhaenyra then hears all the gossip, because apparently in the royal tent, there's a section for the queen, and apparently, the section for the queen, it's expected that the ladies sit around and knit and talk. And just titter and talk and just make up shit. Mm -hmm. So here's one thing that they talked about which Rhaenyra picks up immediately. Lady Joanna was reported to have been abducted when one of Lord Swan's ships sailed through the Stepstones. I, I this In terms of like little odd references to draw from the books, I wasn't expecting this one, but hey, kudos to the show in their world building that they brought in this reference. Right, because I will read you the section about this specific abduction from Fire and Blood. You ready? Mm-hmm. Go on ahead. Amongst the, this is, they're talking about people enslaved by the Kragus Drehar's army on the substance. The Triarchy. Among those thus enslaved was Lady Joanna Swan, a 15 year old niece of the Lord of Stonehelm. When her infamously, um, I'm I'm not going to say that word, her infamously um, cheap uncle refused to pay the ransom, she was sold to a pillow house, poor house. Check this, Spencer. Yeah. Where she rose to become the celebrated courtesan known as the Black Swan and ruler of lease in all but name. Yeah. She, she That's was one of the arms of the triarchy. She became the most powerful person in the entire place because she basically became a pimp. You, you, you want to talk about, you know, using lemons to make lemonade? This girl kicked ass. And I don't know why George keeps doing this, but he has a long line of royals or nobility, young girls get transported from Westeros over to Essos and become incredibly powerful. One of Jaehaerys' daughters followed the same path, and Joanna Swan is another example. But yeah, I'm actually hoping we meet her at some point, given that she's involved in the Triarchy, and, spoilers, Triarchy's not done, we'll continue to come around. Yeah, this is like uh, it's like somebody gets sold to Dorne as a prostitute, yeah. and then you hear that they rule Dorne. Yeah. You're like, no, what? Prince, Prince of Dorne. Unbelievable. Queen Allison asks, what is to happen to Lady Joanna? The response she gets is she is to be sold to a pillow house in the Free Cities, if you are to believe the rumors. Larry Strong. Larry Strong. So this is the the younger son of the hand, Lionel Strong, says the gods didn't make him for hunting, and he has to sit with them. Tough look for my guy, Larry Strong. He's got to sit with the women. It's, It's a tough look, but I love how he did the intro with it, of where it's just like, hey, ladies, mind if I join you? There, there's there's a certain element of, you know, self-abashment that goes into it, but otherwise, he knows what he is. This is his position, and hey, the cakes look really great. I'm going to eat one right now. Yeah, and he does. He, he I, I, We catch him with a cookie at one point, point. I think we catch him with a cake. I think both both happen. I, hey, you know, given the alternative, would I prefer to be wandering out in the mud with the hounds, or otherwise here sharing gossip and eating cakes? Dude, I'm picking the cakes. If that was the option, I'd get. I would like. I'd like to be in the hunt, but I'd actually like to be with the hunt master, not the king. One of them says the stepstones aren't even habitable. They're inhospitable. 
Lady Sierra, I don't know who she is, but this is a person that's in this little gossip circle, mm-hmm. says to the princess who is lurking, mm-hmm. can you give me some insight? Can you give us some insight, princess? Rhaenyra steps forward and says, I don't know how I could. I've never been to the Sepstones. Lady Sierra says, well, your uncle is the mastermind behind this war. So what we're getting is that this little gossiping circle. Like, have you ever been to I, 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 my grandmother? God bless her soul. She's dead now. Mm-hmm. She, I went with her one time to one of her quilting classes. I'll put that right. in quote. Quil- quilting or mahjong. They sit there and quilt and just talk shit about everybody. This is exactly what this is. I, I really like the just transition we get to see in Rhaenyra's reaction to this, because when she's first called over, she actually kind of looks excited. She's like, I'm being included. I get to talk with these people. And that, Boy, that goes, goes so quick. fast downhill. She just doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for the passive-aggressive comments, because she's extremely smart. She picks up on them. Yep. And she doesn't like the gossiping about other people. Like, I, I, I'm telling you, Rhaenyra, me... Fictional world would have worked out. I'm telling you, she I, a lot of the same traits. I, I I very much identify like this sort of like I see what you're doing. You're talking shit about people, and I don't really like it. And does Rhaenyra hide that for a second? How she no. feels about the particular? Hell no. So ladies here are making this point that her uncle is the mastermind behind the war. Rhaenyra points out, like I haven't talked to him in years. So that's another key detail yep. for us is that while Damon's been away, Rhaenyra has not spoken to her uncle, and she, Lady Sierra. Ever the shit stir, just stir in that pot, says, since you supplanted him as heir. So let's put the elephant right in the center of the room. Mm-hmm. Allison steps in. Why? Because as much as I don't like Allison Hightower, she's got some political acumen. She's got some skill. She knows how to work a room. Much, much. She's very good, I think, in this episode. She she shows us a lot of deafness in this, and, in this and episode. A, and a lot more subtlety that we previously necessarily given credit for. We debated to what degree she was intentional behind her actions, just, you know, a sweet, pleasant person, and it came off beautifully. This episode's leaning strongly to the girl knows what she's doing, and she knows how to do it well. I think what we've seen in these three years is that... She's playing the game. She has grown more than any of the other characters. She has grown, progressed become much more formidable and impressive than any of the other characters have grown in that period in my opinion. Agreed. Agreed. She says, Damon made his choices, Lady Sierra. The princess was more suited to the role. Which I liked that a lot. I like that Allison publicly in front of the other ladies of the realm explicitly acknowledged that Rhaenyra is the heir and she deserves it. That was an important gesture on her part. I know. It's more than the fucking king is doing. Absolutely. Renera doesn't even take that bait though, because she still like deuces up middle fingers to fucking Alice. <laughs> what she runs matter, on, doesn't care. Another lady, Lady Redwine, petting her dog. Who I gotta point out—it's a pug. It's a like pug he, in he Westeros. Looks like a good boy. He looks like a good boy. I adore that there are pugs in Westeros. Canon. I don't care if it's not mentioned in the books. This is canon now. Pugs were invented as a breed in Westeros. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I expect there. there's probably a contingent on Twitter, by the way, who's upset that there's a purebreed dog. and uh, 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 There's probably hey, somebody hey, who cares. Hey, hey. But let me explain to you something. I did a lot of looking. I am an expert in this particular area. I, I played the tape back a couple times. I can tell you very scientifically, this is, in fact, a good boy. This is a good boy. And also, come on, the fact that she has a purebreed dog, and particularly a pug, one of those poor dogs that they've just made a genetic horror show of, in theme for the you know the spoiled bored nobility i always love when they include a a dog they can never do it with cats because cats would never handle this but when they include a dog in these 
you know, productions, television shows, movies, whatever. Because you can always catch the dog is looking at its owner off screen. Yes. It's, yeah, not, the it's, always, is it's not looking at anything going on in the particular scene. It's off screen to one person. I, I, this dog's role was be cute and then eat all the food on the plate. This dog had a great day. Lady Redwan says that Damon has made a mess of things. The king must. Huh. Lady Redwan, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Gonna, gonna need to check herself just a touch because she says the king must send ships and men and fix the situation. Renera, but the crown is not at war, Lady Redwine. Lady Redwine says the crown is at war, princess, although your father refuses to admit it. We've been dragged into it by your uncle and the sea snake. I'm going to guess here that Lady Redwine has participated in some day drinking. I, I think that's very possible. I also think it shows how little respect that Lady Redwine has for Rhaenyra. Rhaenyra? Absolutely. Rhaenyra's the crown. Rhaenyra's the heir. And you're speaking shit to her dad and the crown to her, to her face? The Just the cheek right now from this woman. It's a fantastic point. I mean, we, we get a lot of examples through the episode of how... And I loved how you set it up in the last episode. Because I asked you very pointedly in the last episode, what would you do if you were Viserys? Because I thought you were going to take the bait and say you'd make Aegon the heir. Bullshit. And you, and There's you been s- female rulers before. I support the continuation of that claim. Well, I just thought you would you would say that's easier and it's more consistent with Westerosi law, et cetera, et cetera. But what you said was he needs to be doing more to set her up as the heir. Absolutely. And it's evident in the conversation she's having with other people that that's, that's very true. Lady Redwine says that, you know, to reiterate, your father has refused to admit we're at war, been dragged into it by your uncle and the sea snake. Rhaenyra says, and how have you served the realm of late, Lady Redwine? By eating cake? Which, it's a great little stinger of a line. It silences the room. And I like that we see from, you know, the younger son of of, of House Strong that he's actively eating a cake right now, trying to use it to hide his smile as he's staring at Rhaenyra. Yeah, he looks like he's eating a cookie. I'll say this, though. Um, Renera never just about cake. So this no. is not a joke. This nope. is very serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the dog eats her cake at the end of this, which I thought yeah. was just a really good Happily. ending to this scene. Made me laugh. Uh, one notable thing to point out, House Redwine, one of the most powerful houses in the Reach. So, you know, probably a little bit loyal to the High Towers in terms of their particular political perspective on things. Point to keep track of. Which would explain talking down to Renera as if she was not the heir. Yep. Cut to the camp, and boy, it is plentiful, this camp. Renera's walking around and chasing Lannister. You can tell it's Jason Lannister. Swagger. That's how you can tell. You, can, you, can, you can't, I think it might even be played by the same actor, Jason and Tylan Lannister. But you can tell <laughs> the difference based on how they walk. Because Jason Lannister looks just a touch drunk all the time. It looks a touch drunk and just a massive amount full of himself. I love that even when he turns, he does like a, a Fabio hair flip as he goes. This is this is like um, Prince Charming from Shrek in terms of the feel I get from this guy, and that's kind of perfectly in keeping for the Lannisters. And it's fascinating to me how much pride he has because he's not even winning the race with the guy he was born with. Like no. he's not even number one. He's not even number one. In the two-person twins what, that he is, like he's I, he's the second twin in terms of power. Yeah, actually, I would have to check that. Is he the heir to House Lannister? I wasn't clear on that point. I, don't I mean, they're twins. God help you on how you decide that one. I'm not sure. I, I think I I think Jason is. Yeah, but um, he's obviously not doing quite as well. 
as Thailand, who's worked his way all the way up to the, the king's small council as master of ships. Jason then starts to talk to Rhaenyra, and oh boy, is this an awkward scene. <laughs> he asks her if her own second name day was as grand as this. She points out she doesn't remember, and neither will Aegon. And neither will Aegon, by the way. He's not going to remember this shit either. Mm-hmm. Jason walks up, introduces himself as Lord Jason Lannister. She oh. responds... I gathered that from all the lions. So this is such so this is so great because it does something that I pointed out in the reaction podcast. Like the she doesn't think very highly of the Lannisters. Like yes, the Lannisters are wealthy, and yes, I, th- I think I actually think you were right in the in the reaction pod that they are the controller of the Western lands. They're like the sort of uh, Lord's paramount, Lord paramount of the Western lands. But they certainly don't rank very high for. Our queen, Rhaenyra, here. No. This isn't a realm of where the Targaryens are dependent on Lannister money and support and anything else. The Lannisters are there, and they're a high lord, and yada, yada, yada. From her perspective, they're all just peasants. I also think it's a bit of an inside joke to us who watch the main series and watch Daenerys fucking loathe the Lannisters for eight seasons. Like, it's it's pretty funny to to see a Targaryen and a Lannister interacting in this way. Also, in terms of, you know, actually getting on Rhaenyra's good side, Jace, what Jason should have done here in response to her obvious insult was have a bit of a laugh at himself and be a little bit self-degrading. I think Rhaenyra would have jumped on that a lot more than just the fop that she instead gets throughout the conversation. Yeah, he's not capable of doing that. He at some point hands her some wine and says, uh, it's the finest honey wine you'll ever taste. Made in Lannisport, of course. Oh, of course, of course, of course. Do you notice Rhaenyra tastes it and doesn't like it? Way too fucking sweet. Yeah, she doesn't like it. Way too sweet for her. Jason says the king's wood is good for hunting, but it's not as good as Casterly Rock, of course. He asks her if she's been. She says, well, I... What? I, I think I went on a school trip. You know, didn't we, I think we went to the Capitol you went at some to, point back in the day. You went to D.C., didn't you, at some point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, Washington Mon- yeah, the Washington Monument was there. Yeah, I saw it. It was it was a thing. Uh, he says, well, look out. This is like the lamest thing. He basically turns her around. Paid so a picture. Behind, so he can get behind her. And he's like, look at the sky. It would be out there. Like, that's basically what he says. <laughs> It'd be that too. And it would be big. Yeah, and he makes the point that the rock is three times the size of Old Town and taller than the wall in the north. Apparently, this is true. That, that is the, true. The Casterly Rock, the tip yes. of Casterly Rock is taller than the wall. But, like, I we've never seen Casterly Rock on screen. We've only seen drawings of it. Shame. I just don't understand how, like, may, it, it must just be, like, a much more elevated area to begin with. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me that this building would be higher than the wall. Yeah, I mean, from from what I understand... The western ones being on the opposite side from the Vale, those are kind of like the two mountainous regions with the flat riverlands in the center. So yeah, it's a rocky area, and this just is a particular jutty little mountain that they built their seat on. He says that the rock is uh, doesn't have a dragon pit, but he has resources to build one. Rhaenyra's like, why do you need a dragon pit? He's like, to house dragons, of course. I'd do anything for my queen or my lady wife. Even right there was a bad choice of language. If he just used the word and, he would have gotten so many more points. But or tells her all she needs to know about how he views her. He did. He said, my queen or my lady wife. Like, she couldn't be the ruling queen if she made that. He is such a dope. Yes. Rhaenyra leaves, obviously, but she does say thanks for the wine. She storms up to Viserys. Says, is that what I am to you? A prize to proffer about to the great houses? Viserys, little bit. A little bit. Little bit. Viserys knows what she means and seems irritated. He says, you're of age, you must marry, and Jason Lannister's a good match. 
she great back and forth here. She says he's arrogant and self serious. He says, "Well, I thought you might have that in common." Uh, now, points. That's a funny points. Score point. the fight, sir. Yeah, absolutely. That that one goes ten nine Viserys for sure. However, during all of this discussion, they're screaming at each other in a tent when people are right there. It's not down the hall. It's not 10 feet away. They are right there. Like, they're having this discussion out in the open with a bunch of gossipers. Yeah. Remember your John Adams, sir. If you're going to insult people, do it in private. If you do it in public, they may think you are serious. And this is what makes me think it's a change from the books. Because in the books, they make it clear that Viserys and Rhaenyra are simpatico. Yeah. They are tight. It would be hard for me to believe that Viserys and Rhaenyra are having these types of screaming matches in front of gossip hounds like Lady Redwan and Lady Sierra, and that did not get back to the telling of the story that is in Fire and Blood. So it makes me think it's a divergence from the books. They do have a falling out later. I think this is just a natural consequence of aging up Rhaenyra, and I think it works. I think it fits a lot more for how she would be responding to the present events and also just the seriousness of her claim at this stage, given what her age is. Oh, well, the falling out you're talking about is way later. Um, but yes. Much later. It does happen, <sighs> does happen, but yeah, I think they've necessarily moved at least aspects of it forward. The series explains that she came of age. And since she's came of age, he's been slowly drowning in a lake of parchment flung from every corner of the realm, <laughs> which a is a great hilarious. way of describing it. Yeah. yeah, he starts to he raise his voice and he's, exp- he's saying, look, everyone is telling me I got a match, I got a match here. I got to marry into somebody. That's what we do. That is our duty. She says, I do not wish to get married. And Viserys screams at her potential line of the episode. Even I do not exist above tradition and duty, Renera. I love that line. That is such a great line. That is such a great summary of the position that he's coming from here. And it's something she truly can't dispute. It's that, lady, you know, oh. we, to a certain degree, serve the realm. This is, an, this is a requirement. And also, you should have framed it this way. It's an important boon to you, too. Let's keep track of that as well, in terms of solidifying your position and claim. Which he Depending on how he to, does it. He eventually gets to. But I yeah. do think she can argue this point. And I think she argues it very well at the end of the episode. Which is, <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're making, you, you're talking about how you were the sacrificial lamb here, but if you were, wouldn't you have married the person that it made the most sense to marry? Or you married for love yourself. So that, that comes in later. Fair Otto point. cuts in. Uh, Why? <laughs> because Otto is the spirit animal. Otto's there when there is tension. Otto just senses it and, up and arrives. This is so this is so skillfully done by Otto because when you when you get the cutaway because we're getting a cut of just Viserys and Rhaenyra. Yeah. When you get the cutaway, it is a crowded room that they're arguing in, and everyone is looking at them. Yeah, and, and Otto just goes, "Excuse me, Your Grace." And just cuts it right off. And I love, we don't see Otto at first. He just kind of like apparates. Just like, tense moment, Otto is here. He's emerged from the ether. But I feel like I cut you off. Did you have something else to say about their exchange? No, it's a a one, it's a, we can focus on it when it happens later. But the fact you bring it up, I absolutely adore her line of pointing out, Dad, you married for love. Where's your argument here? Remember your dune. Never marry for love. It'll bring down the house. You ignored that. Now you're trying to put it on me. Yeah, it was t- it, this this back and forth was 10-9 Viserys, but this fight is not over. No, no, no. Otto says, excuse me, your grace. When he does this, it's apparent to everybody in the tent. It's apparent that everybody in the tent is listening to them, and Otto has sensed that, and good luck, Otto, for jumping in and stopping this. Viserys, wanting to get the last word to Renera, just goes, you must marry. <laughs> 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 you must marry. And mm-hmm. it's Otto, yes. Otto says, 
the royal huntsmen have sent a report that there's been a sighting of a white heart. Oh. If you don't know what a white heart is, it's a white stag. Stag, elk, thingamabob, yes. It is what the low, the, the common-born people, the low people, as they would call them at King's Landing, called the king of the king's wood. So basically, king of kings, the yeah, white heart. It, it's, an, it's an emblem of old kings before the Targaryens arrived. It is one of the fixtures and symbols of royalty. And so, like... This is a hell of a find on Aegon II's name day. And they continue, because they're trying to take this square peg and jam it into this circle, right? And so he immediately goes to, it's a regal portent for Prince Aegon's name day. Immediately drawing the connection. It's a sign from the gods that Prince Aegon is regal, regal, he's kingly, etc., etc. Yep. Let's see how that plays out later. The series looks back and Rhaenyra is gone. She stormed out of the tent. And Kristen Cole sees her. She hops on a horse and takes off. And guess what? Sir Kristen Cole goes after her. Kudos to whatever stunt lady they got doing the riding there, because I'm assuming it's probably not the actress. But, man, she is hauling ass through that forest. That's a dangerous thing to do at full speed on horseback. It's also a dangerous thing what Sir Kristen Cole does, which is to track the horse down and grab it by the reins and stop it. That is not an easy thing to do. It's impressively shot and done, I would say. There we do have a friend... Uh, I've got a close friend who is a veterinarian who works primarily with horses, and I wish to goodness I could get her opinion right now on if that was how you actually slow a horse down, because that looked very dangerous to me. It looked very. It looked like he was going to try to grab her, and either A, he was going to fall off his horse, or B, her horse was going to like suddenly start a rear, and she was going to go straight over it. Yeah, it looked like they could have just all just gone tumbling. But anyway, it worked. Shout out Sir Kristen Cole. They sit for just a second breathing, and he says, what the hell happened back there? She says, father, father, he's trying to sell me off to Jason Lannister. I am not sure that sell is very fair there. No, this was very much like arranged date without telling your kid kind of thing. It was like, hey, you know, meet her at this time, at this location, buy her her some lunch. We'll see where things go. He didn't promise anything. He just like, he brokered a meeting. The exact thing that if I was in high school with you, I would have done with you and Charlotte Flair. Yeah, totally would have, fucking I funny. would have absolutely arranged a date for the two of you. No one gets that reference, and I'm very happy for that. Uh, well, I got some wrestling fans who listen. <laughs> uh, Spencer went to high school with Charlotte Flair. It was so cool. We'll talk about it on another podcast later. later. um says, Was I named to the Iron Throne so that I may only further the standing of a Lord of Casterly Rock? So, again really pissing downstream on fucking the the Lannisters. Like, like basically, is it even worth my... Like, like what she's... what In essence, what I think she's saying here is she's admitting that you do, as a royal, have to marry for strategy. And she's saying, is this really the best we can do? Some fucking Lord of Casterly Rock? It's not... I mean, again, none of the matches that have been proposed are bad. All of them actually have some potential to solidify strength, to offer a good basis of support. The problem with this one is it's being explicitly framed by him, by the guy, as so when you're no longer heir, you can go basically be semi-exiled in Cashley Rock. It'll be great. Cole waits a beat. Want me to kill him? <laughs> That's a Kingsguard for you. Very good. Gets a laugh from the princess, de-escalates That's the situation. A sword, sword for you. He says they should go back. I'd like to point out something about Sir Kristen Cole. Mm-hmm. He's a good-looking guy. He is. Princess Rhaenyra obviously likes him. Mm-hmm. They're alone in the Kingswood. Yes. 
and all he can say to her is, we should go back, we should go back, we should go back, we should go back. Sir Kristen Cole trying to honor his vows. Let's remember, they've made this as explicit. They've referenced it, but it hasn't been explicitly said. They are members of the King's Guard are sworn to chastity. They will never marry. They will never father sons. That is, they're not supposed to have sex. Period. They're a monastic order. Yeah, she says it's a beautiful day, and she wants to take in the Kingswood. Cut to them walking. She asks him if he was ever betrothed, and it's kind of a funny question because I don't think she realizes. That it's almost an offensive question based on how he where he was born in this caste system, right? Because he had to explain, like, yeah, I had a f- I had fun when I was young, but my station I, we didn't have formal betrothals. Like, it, I, I I was just free to marry any common born girl that I could find. That's that's where I was at. I love how he's talking with the heir to the realm, and he's basically saying, "Yeah, I used to fuck." You know, oh yeah, I, he did. I, he said, "I ended, yeah, I had an adventurous youth. I don't think he hit it at all." And <laughs> I guarantee, Charles Barkley guarantee that plugged in our girl Renera's head. So, huh. Just huh. a bit. I mean, hell, huh. she was pretty much just asking. He's like, huh. "So, you've been with anybody before?" Basically, <laughs> what's your number? <laughs> yeah, she says he was lucky to have a say in his own life, and he gently reminds her. I would say gently that many in the kingdom, if not all, would trade places with her. And she says, that's only because none of them have ever held my position. Good line. Debatable, but good line. Yeah, it is. You know, it's a good point, anyway, is that a lot of people aspire to her position, but they don't really know all that it encompasses. I still think the vast majority of people, even if they knew what she was going through, would love to trade places with her. She says that she may be the Princess of Dragonstone, but she is teethless. He reminds her she had the power to write his name in the white book, meaning to get him inducted into the King's Guard. Mm-hmm. Remember the white book that Jamie was writing in in the main series? Jamie was writing in the book about mm-hmm. all the stuff that he did. I do. And I remember on the show that it was um, Brienne that was writing it at the very end. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's a great point that he makes, but all I have, I owe to you. Hardly call that toothless princess. And she shares a smile with that. It's like, okay, yeah, I did that thing. He also points out that yeah, that, that's a great quote, but he also points out that being named to the King's Guard is the highest honor anyone in his family ever has ever had. Could so ever imagine. it's it's not this is not a small thing. This is the biggest thing that's ever happened to their family, and she did it. And he's like, mm-hmm. "That's not that's not Tifus. She did, and she she did it. I wouldn't exactly call it on a whim, but she did it with a wave of her hand. Yeah, that's power there. Oh, it's for sure. Cuts to the King's party, and this is a royal hunting party to be sure. There's a lot of people there. The king walks up to the head huntsman. Huntsman is, has some droppings for the king to expect, I will say this. The king is a little bit too... It's gross. It's gross. He, he, he just gets up in there for a good sniff of that stuff. And rolls it around in his hand. It's like, does he have any Purell around? I mean, that's pretty gross. Um, as he does, they talk about how far away the stag is. Apparently it's pretty close. The huntsman says that before the dragons ruled over Westeros, the white heart was a symbol of royalty in these lands. Otto jumps in, and on this day of all days, you know, your grace, I've never been one for signs of importance. Uh-huh. But if the gods did wish to show their favor, uh, uh-huh. he, he he does everything but the uh, at the end, right? This felt like his brother talking to a certain degree. It's like, dude, we get it. You've already said this. We understand. But he's got orders. <laughs> Well, the king also is a little irritated with him, right? Because yes. he gives him that laugh that sort of like, oh, oh, okay, pats him on the back and goes off. 
The king seems to keep, you know, that thought in the back of his mind as he gets on his horse. Because what I interpreted this as is the king, as he walked away from Otto, was like, fuck, they're all talking about it. And it seems like the king has just spent the last two years just being really happy he's got a new kid and just been just like kind of in a, a good time. in a glow with respect to it. And now that, that he's actually, now that he's actually paying attention, now the thought's been put in his head, he can't ignore it and his fun is just cratering. And we see and that he, in the course of the episode. And he's, it's probably the thing he's, he's seen it everywhere, right? Yeah. Cause he's, he's, he, he heard that from Otto and he goes, that's what I, I know what Otto's thinking about. I know what they're talking about. Uh, from this stage going forward, how drunk is the king now versus how drunk does the king get before this episode is done? Well, I got the impression that on this hunt, they, they drink during the whole... They're, they're all drinking all day long. Yes, part of the experience, um, apparently. So he's probably at, what, a two at the, the conversation with Otto. But then we cut to that evening and it starts to ramp up at a very high slope, I would say. Uh, the king is sitting on the throne drinking quite a lot, it seems. Ominous music is playing. He looks over at Aegon thinking cut to jason lannister he comes up with a spear i gotta say jason, jason lannister very proud of this spear apparently it was forged in the golden gallery in honor of prince aegon i'll tell you this uh typically the props in game of thrones look pretty good this thing looked like shit i just wanted to point that out <laughs> i was curious your thought i thought it looked fine but i've i've seen some people online go man they used up their budget on, on arranging for the hunt not in the spear the spear looked like crap it's handed to the king, who also doesn't think much of it, I don't think. He says it's quite a thing. So maybe it looking like shit is on purpose, because the king isn't overly impressed with this thing either. He says he hopes it might provide... This is Jason Lannister talking. He says, I hope it might provide a killing stroke to the White Heart. King of the King's Wood, it's as if the seven themselves have blessed this day. Again, with this shit. Again. Laying it on thick. Everyone is laying... There you go. Perfect. Laying it on thick. The king can see what everyone's doing, and he continues to get irked more and more in this conversation. He goes back to his wine. Jason, who should have left then. That was his moment. The king said, thank you, and that was an obvious dismissal. Instead, he just keeps talking. He says, I'd be honored to take the princess to wife. Quote, what I offer your daughter in the crown is strength. Now that is a unbelievable line to tell him. The king... The king, in his right, he has, he has, he's well within his right to respond more aggressive than he does. But he says, do you think House Targaryen wants for strength? He do, and he does it like it's a little like, you know, ha ha that was a fun little joke you did right there. But with an obvious edge of, yeah, here's, I'll give you an opportunity to explain yourself with that line. He tries and fails miserably. He says, if someone offered you more dragons, would you take them? Potential line of the episode. Do you have dragons to offer? <laughs> Good luck. Viserys, as you said, I, I don't give him enough credit. The man knows how to talk with the people. He does. He's a, he's a good talker. Jason gets that he's being pushed back on, finally. He says, well, Casterly Rock is a great seat. She can take a seat there with me, by my side, and not be left wanting for her loss in station. What? The king's like, what loss in station, bro? Jason's like, well, if you were to name Aegon Air, of course, your grace. And he says, and when am I doing that exactly? I, I, I assumed, I mean, you'd be firstborn son, and many of us thought that you were gonna. Many of us, you say? Many of us? Your bannermen have questioned my choice of heir? No, 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 no. What, what are we talking? I, I think there's it something is over your, there. It is your sworn duty to report rebellions to it in my kingdom. Re re rebellion, sir? 
So that back and forth. Spiraling. Spiraling. But also Viserys, he's getting mad with Jason Lannister, but he's actually getting mad with the situation. And and he's coming to realize that he's in, which is that a lot of people around him are assuming, wanting him to name Aegon the heir, and he is not sure he wants to do it. I mean, Viserys defaults to, I'm happy, everyone's happy, it's okay that nothing's going, nothing's getting done. That's what Viserys runs on. And then every time, every time he realizes how just bad that can be, he gets mad, not only at the person he's talking to, but at a certain element at both the situation and himself, that by his nature, he's returned to this moment once again. And it takes this for Viserys to finally stand up for Rhaenyra. Finally. And he says, you know what? I did not name her my heir on a whim. And you'd be best to remember that. To which this, Jason Lannister does what he should have done two minutes ago and exits finally the hell fucking out stage leaves. left. Yeah. Viserys then asks for more wine drunkenly. Uh, Spencer, did you notice his hand during this? Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on this. It looked like he was missing a finger. Was yeah. he missing more than one? Two. Did it looked like two. The it looked man's like falling apart. Yeah, the, the hand that had been, that he put in maggots hand, yeah. last episode. Yeah. It, if you look closely at how the hand, it, they did a really good job of this, how the glove is sitting on his hand, he's missing a couple the, fingers. Yeah, the fingers don't wrap around it. The it's way wa- it's wagging. Yeah, it's wagging. It's a nice touch that they, that they showed that subtly, and it just showed that, oh, things have not stopped progressing. This guy's got health issues. Otto then says that the white stag is in reach. It won't be long until they have it. So Otto then, sensing that the king is irritated and drunk, I think tries to just have a little one-on-one with him to kind of cool him down, to get him thinking about something else. He asks what the king thinks of Jason Lannister's proposal. Viserys, that man's pride has pride. So he, (laughs) you know, the interesting thing is that Viserys is so, so tied into this concept of duty and like, knocking out this checklist that he doesn't even realize that him and his daughter think the exact same thing about this guy. They both are on the same page. They both are put off by him. They both want to make japes about like how stupid he is. Like if they could just like drop all of the, like here's our to-do list, they could probably have a good laugh about how, what an idiot this guy is. I I think basically Viserys read this guy's dating app page, but clearly did not meet him before he paired him with his daughter. And he's coming to regret that decision. Yeah, his Match.com profile looked good, but man, those were some old pictures. Hey, he was holding pictures with the fish. He was meeting all modern trends. It, you know, he had, he had the best thoughts about it. Otto says, well, Rhaenyra is not only, you're not only Rhaenyra's father, you're also her king, and she will do as you command. Viserys, potential line of the episode, I do not wish to command her. I want her to be happy. Novel, Aww. novel fucking idea. Aww. And, and the, God, shout out to Patty Constantine because the, when Not he drops park. that line, the look on his face, he like looks, it's almost like a hopeful look because he allows himself for a second to think like, I want her to be truly happy. Like yeah. her own happiness. And he like, he kind of, a smile goes over he him. He means it. Legitimately. He does want that. He bumbles through it on a daily basis, but that heart core is still there. Otto then pitches another idea. A choice a little closer to home. He proposes to wed Rhaenyra to Prince Aegon. Viserys looks at the baby. The boy just turned two, Otto. Viserys says, yeah, 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 I get it. Otto goes, yeah, 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 I I know. During this, Viserys starts laughing. Viserys then yells at him, I came here to hunt, not to be suffocated by all this fucking politicking. Otto says, let's uh, not speak of it anymore. And he gets up and leaves. I have not prepared you for this, Spencer. Go on. 
but I have something to reveal to the audience. Go and on. To, and to you. Uh-huh. I also think Rhaenyra should marry Aegon. I also think it would, it's not the dumbest idea. We, we get a couple of marriage alliances that are proposed here by different people. Both of them are, compl- other than the Lannister, but they ignore Lannister entirely. Two ones that are proposed from here, perfectly legitimate options in terms of bringing the realm together. This would have fixed everything. It would have. And from Rhaenyra's perspective, who doesn't really want to get married or have kids right now, at least in her mindset, solves that problem for a would few years. Would have been perfect, and it would have allowed her to be much closer to her brother as he developed. And hopefully to impart some wisdom on him and to influence him as he comes of age. This would have been a really good idea. Uh, I have now come out in favor uh, to all the people publicly. I think this was a good idea. So you, let's just keep this, you know, in the record. Lee, totally okay with half-sibling marriages with two-year-olds and 18-year-olds. Just yes. keep track of that, everyone going forward. You've learned something about Lee right now. Yeah, in this specific situation, weirdly <laughs> enough, I do. I think that's the right idea. I think he, uh, yeah, I think you make you 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 make the match when he turns fourteen. You marry him. I think it would have fixed everything. The king sits Probably there alone, been. drinking. So here's the here's the thing about the king right now. Okay, here's what I'm seeing, Spencer. Here's what sure. I'm seeing with Do my little eye. Here's what I spy with my little eye. I want to hear it now. He's drunk. Yeah. He's on a hunt. Yeah. He seems to be a little overweight. Yeah. It's King Bobby B. Is that Bobby B's music? Is that right Bobby now? B's music? He's channeling it across time. It's wonderful. It's, again, just discussed this in our first acknowledgement episode, but this was to the point that my girlfriend looked at me and said, "Is he totally going to get killed by a boar tomorrow?" I'm like, "The similarities are there." It's just proving. It, look, if you become King of Westeros for long enough, you're eventually going to be fat, drunk, and on a hunt. That just happens. It's part of the routine. It is to be expected at some point or other. If you're not doing that, you're not kinging properly. The king looks over at Alicent. Lionel Strong then comes over and says that they have sent out riders for the princess. He reports that Sir Kristen Cole went after her, so there's a hope that they're together. I gotta say, this whole camp is not quite worried enough about the fact the princess is out in the fucking woods. I just want to point that out. The heir apparent is missing in the king's wood with maybe sort of a king's guard with her. Not sure, don't know. Why don't we have a hundred fucking people? Why is it the hunt now for Renera? I think we're I think we're being led to imply a that Jordan Council doesn't really care that much about Rhaenyra. Data point to remember. Point number two: Rhaenyra also, I bet, does this a lot. I mean, hell, she wrote the Dragonstone with anybody knowing. This is they, this seems like a certain element of Rhaenyra really is missing. Is it yeah. Tuesday already? It's a really good point. We do start the episode with Viserys bellowing. Has anybody seen Rhaenyra? Yeah, the, the, I mean the fact that she's in the Kingswood is a progression, but I think everyone's gotten a certain degree jaded at this point about it. So I'm going to say this: um, you are very similar to me to Lionel Strong in this scene. This is in- you, interesting. This is very this is very Spencer here because you like he comes up and like Viserys is all emotion. It just and hits him with just nothing but pure emotion. Wait, and he says, she's a heedless contrarian. If I commanded her to stay away from the Lannister, she'd have run off with Jason out of spite. And Lionel, with humor, a little bit of insight, de-escalates the situation and takes the emotion right out of it. Just punctures that fucking balloon and says, well, a truly great, tra- a truly great, well, th- th- this is after, yeah. um, uh, Viserys says, a truly great Targaryen king I am, powerless over my own daughter. Lionel says, well, King Jaehaerys ruled for over half a century apiece. 
We all, basically saying, we all accept that King Jehari is the best king ever. And his children drove him fucking nuts, especially his daughter. It's tradition, your grace. Yeah, it said one of his daughters, one of Jehari's daughters, King Jehari's, not just was, you know, not was kidnapped, not that story, voluntarily went over to Essos and started a brothel. Just cause, just to kind of thumb her nose at her dad. I don't know how many times in our friendship I have come to you, ball of emotion, and said something. And you're just like, well, and like, bang, it all just drops. <laughs> just drops right down. Yeah. That's that's what it reminds me of. This is, this is really well done here. And I talked about this in the last episode. If you're impressed with Lionel Strong, you should be. The man went to the MVP. Citadel. He went to the Citadel. He went far enough to get six chains, which is extremely far in his maester training. Tell Ditch that. And now, now is on the King's Small Council, and I would, I'd venture to say probably one of the, one of the best, if not the best person on his council. Particularly on a one-on-one basis. When he's with the other ones, eh, he, he, to a certain degree, gets overpowered he's by more forceful wills. That, yeah. But when he's talking to the King one-on-one, the man gives him honest, good advice, and is not afraid to do so. And it does so out of loyalty from everything we've seen so far. I, I, I love how the conversation progresses of where, you know, they go into the subject of, you know, who she married, and the king immediately defaults to, because he's seen it with everybody here, oh, you're going to recommend your son, Breakbones, you know, you're going to offer him right now? And it's well, like the but thought what's interesting cr- to me is, though, is that, like, Strong goes out on a limb here, because the conversation's over. He's in that Jason Lannister zone, and he and goes, do you wish it. to hear my opinion on this? But the thing is, is that we all need to start trusting Lionel Strong a little bit we more, because he go. had a plan in this conversation. You're exactly right. That whole thing went through. Strong said, you flatter me, sir, but no, I'm not thinking about my son. I think the best match is the Sea Snake's daughter, sir, or Sea Snake's son, Sir Lanor. And he says, some years ago, I counseled you to take a sister to wife. My reasoning remains the same. Brilliant stroke here. To just completely dismiss the notion of his son. He knows that's not going to happen. And then he goes right to a point he made before. And what he's doing is he's subtly reminding the king, hey, you probably should have done what I said before. But since you didn't, here's another chance at that apple. Here's another bite at the apple. As a political recommendation... How would you score this? Because it comes across to me as genius. I mean, ten. A, ten. It, it, it's a. It can't it's a, get any higher. It, it's the perfect recommendation. Is that our? She's not going to. She's not going to marry Aegon, which is the best idea. Yeah. If she's not going to do that, and I, I, I know a lot of people might get confused. I don't like the fact that the Targaryens you're, you're, married. You're saying pure sister, politics, right? But now. they do all the fucking time. It's common for them, and if it's common for them, that's probably politically the best move. But second to that is Lanor. I completely agree. I mean, she and Lanor are related, too. I mean, particularly in the books, they're like cousin. They're some level of co- a complicated cousins, cousin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's just been also historically, royal families did that all the damn time. So there's a, there's a detail cousin there, too. Cousin might as well be stranger. Yeah, practically. And yeah, just politically. It's like you're estranged from the sea snake. This, re- this reconnects the houses of Targaryen and House Valerian. His house is incredibly wealthy. It's incredibly powerful. Brings them back into the realm. Also, he's a warrior. He's right now fighting in the Stepstones. A pure Valerian stock to boot. Everything is checking a box that is perfect for a Targaryen marriage right now, and it will strengthen both your claim and her claim. Your your throne and her claim. We need to do this, sir. But where he goes from Jedi Knight to Jedi Master in this conversation is at the end. When yes. he says... We must pray, of course, that Lanor survives the fighting in the Stepstones. Oh, so genius. he's doing so many things here in this conversation because he he also gets it on fucking Viserys' radar. Hey, maybe I have another reason here 
to commit some resources and troops to the Stepstones, which I guarantee, if you give true serum to Lionel Strong, he wants the king to intervene in the Stepstones. So he's f- placing himself very high, in high regard and establishing trust with the king in a vulnerable moment for the king. He is giving him a very solid recommendation about Renera's match, and he's also pushing the king for action in the Stepstones. Bravo, Lionel Strong. Bravo. And, 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 and. Well done by both the character and the actor. It's my, one of my favorite scenes in the episode we're seeing right here. Kudos again. We say this every time the guy's on the stream, but Patty Constantine, I love the, just the expression shift on his face as he goes through this conversation of where he's just hit by this is so obviously a good idea and so obviously truth and so obviously a loyal advisor in front of me. It visibly sobers him up. To it the does a little that, bit, yeah. The point he like, accepts it, nods, stands, gives Lionel a good, honest, drunk pat on the back and just, it's time to go to bed now. My he, brooding is over for the night. He Well, he's not done yet, but he's close to done. He does he does play this like a guy who is drunk who doesn't get drunk often. Yes. Because people who get drunk often will try to hide their drunkenness. So a lot of like the like swaying and the, you know, the obvious things, they're able to rein in because they're they're trying to not act drunk. This is a guy who has no reason to not want to act drunk. He's the king. He doesn't give a fuck. He's good the, to king. Be the king. And he also doesn't get drunk all that often, right? So he's not yes. used to this. Um, cut to Renera and Cole. He asks her again to return to camp. Why? Because he's a man of his vows. It's his job. She says she prefers it there. Cole says the king would be worried about her. She says his grace can worry himself to death if he so likes. She smiles at him. He doesn't necessarily smile back at that line, but she's flirting, obviously. Yes. She then looks at him and says, tell me something, Sir Kristen Cole. Do you think the realm will ever accept me as their queen? Pregnant pause. They'll have no choice to. They'll have no choice but to, princess. That's wow. an answer. That wow. is a that, that answer has layers. Wow. He might as well have said no. Yeah. He might as well have just said, no, uh, no, no, princess. I don't think they will. And she takes it that way. But luckily for their conversation, the, the horses start stirring and there he gets up sword in hand. Uh, yeah, there are some twigs. What did you think this was going to be? Because I don't remember this being in the book. This is something that's added in here. No, what did you expect? What did you expect? I thought it was other robbers. Or it was going to be the white stack, or the white heart. But uh, that's what I was expecting. Totally wasn't expecting like, you know. Or- the a boar, great King Bobby B. Boar. This is the great great grandfather to the boar that gutted Bobby B. This, this has been a family of royal killing boars in the Kingswood for generations now. And that boar does flip up, hits hits Sir Kristen Cole in the, in the him. bottom and, and and flips him up. Then comes at Renera. Renera got a little bit of upper body strength, is able to hold the neck of the boar long enough for Sir Kristen Cole to stab it. When he does, the fucking sword gets about two inches from her face, so he had to be very careful with that. It falls over, but it wakes back up, and then Renera goes full American Psycho and stabs this thing about 16 times, showing that she's got a little bit of a violent streak in her, too. She's got a little Targaryen in her. Got that fire. Uh, Got the fire in her, and in the scene, just utterly covered in boar blood. And it almost looks cathartic for her. She has had... she has not had the opportunity to get this just kind of angry tension out of herself for uh, three years now at best. And this act of murder almost feels like a bit of a release for her. Cut to the king staring at a big fire, drinking. Allison walks up behind him. I will say this is a beautifully shot scene. 
where they are they have this huge fire there's no lighting anywhere else but the fire and then you get like a front shot of them in front of this this uh big bonfire it's a really beautiful shot she asks him if everything's all right he says i named her this is this is where he really tells the truth he speaks his soul right now to his lady wife Viserys tells the absolute truth he says i named her to protect the realm from Damon. she was my only child the realm's delight Mm-hmm. I named her out of love because I no longer believed dot, 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 presumably that I would have a child, blah, 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 blah. So in my opinion here, he admits, I named her primarily to slight Damon, but also because I do love her. And so he's got these two competing things where he, when he thinks about, should I name Aegon the heir? There's probably part of him saying, well, the only reason I ever named her to begin with was because I wanted to slight Damon. But he also has this other part, which he had to bring up, which is he wouldn't have done it if he didn't love and trust her. And so that's the part that's holding him up. It, it Very much so. And I love where the conversation goes from here, of where it's also wrapped up in his own twisted pride. That, you know, he had this prophecy. He had this vision. He had this hope that he was one of the prophetic Targaryens, rare as they are, rarer even than dragon riders, that what he saw, his dream, was going to come to pass. It's almost like a childhood kind of view about someday I'll be a superhero or I'll have special powers. And he's never been able to let that go. And that's so much informed and driven his decision is now wrapped up in his own doubt that it still could come true now. I have a son now, but I have a duty to a daughter who's here and I love and named my heir. It's all just wrapped up in this little corrupt package, corrupt, twisted, confused package inside this guy. And again, Patty Constantine acts the shit out of expressing that. I talked last episode about how it was sort of really sad that the king is the king of Westeros. He is the number one guy, number one spot, full rule of Westeros, consolidated rule. No one's questioning it. Peacetime rule. And all he longs for is old Valeria. It's also interesting here that he rode Valeria in the Black Dread. Something that, like, everybody, like, all, every youth, he every... the last like, writer it, of it. It is, like, so impressive and so exciting. But yet, he didn't want to be a dragon writer. He wants to be, he wants to have prophecy. He wants to be a dreamer, yeah. right? And so it's yet again him wanting the thing. He has this, like, really sad part of him that, like, he is never happy with what he has. Even though what he has is fucking amazing, he always wants something that he can't have. And, and he, he steeps it in guilt, too, because he views his just, like, childhood imagination that he would someday be a dreamer, that all of his, you know, goals would be accomplished in that way, that he'd hearken back to, like, basically, like, the founders of the Targaryen line, or at least their exile from Valeria. And he views that obsession with the dream of wanting to be a dreamer as the reason that his wife died, which... A lot to unpack whether that's true or not. I think he's being a little bit overly hard on himself when it comes to that in terms of why his wife got pregnant. He had duties to the realm in that regard, too. Um, but it's, She certainly seemed a willing participant in that particular pregnancy she, based she on the conversation she had yeah. with Renera. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've, you've, you've kind of moved along here uh, in the in the recap. He does say a great line here. He says he thought naming Renera would be his way out of his abyss of his yeah. grief and regret and naming her heir would begin to set things right. He to never imagined it. he would remarry or have a son. Then he ends it with looking at Allison and says, what if I was wrong? He has tears in his eyes as he says this. He touches her. He finally pours the rest of the wine out and cut the scene. Great scene. Another, again, the middle part of this episode is stellar. Just, again, my favorite scenes in Game of Thrones, the battles, they're great. Love them. They're all fun to watch. But two characters talking with well-written dialogue 
that is my jam. Cut to the next morning. The King's party is walking up. I'll tell you this. Patty Constantine also looks hungover here. He does. And they have a stag. It's not a white one, though. So all this talk about, well, we finally found the white. We found the white stag. And that's a sign from the gods, et cetera, et cetera. Guess what? They never found a white stag. They got a regular ass stag. So it was all bullshit. I, I love how bullshit and pointless and unnecessary and unpleasant for all involved this scene is. Because it's so delightfully symbolic of, like, the cause they've come out here for and what is actually coming to bear as a result. And I'll say this. I, uh, the vast majority of the time, uh, I eat vegan. I'm an aspiring vegan. I try to eat vegan as much as I can. I very rarely eat meat. Very rarely eat dairy if I can. Um, I in no way am telling you, Spencer, or anybody on this podcast that they need to change their eating habits. I am not saying that. I'm saying for me... I do like that they showed on screen how much it sucks to kill an animal for food. I just like that. That's a personal, selfish thing that I like. I'm not trying to push that on anybody else. I just liked that. And for me, I don't even. I also don't even like venison. So you know, find other things to eat. Guess who's holding the fucking thing? Who is? I didn't know. Harwin Strong. Break. Oh clothes. yeah, didn't recognize. Hell yeah, right. he is. King walks up. Everybody. Uh, anyway, he he. King walks up with this fucking spear and he stabs it. The Lannister times. spear. Takes two times. King misses the first, misses the heart the first time. Of course he does. And uh, it's a terrible scene. It's awful. And I would compare this. I think there's a parallel here to him for, for the, the murder of Emma Aaron. Um, because mm-hmm. it's, it's obviously like, it's very different, but it's, it's for it's, his ambition. Well, it's it, yeah, exactly. It's his assumed duty it's what he thinks he has to do it's what he thinks he's has no choice about mm-hmm. you know in duty to yeah. the realm and but in reality in both of these situations he absolutely had a choice he very much within within his rights could have said let the fucking stag go because guess what Baylor the blessed would have Baylor the blessed would have been like guys take the day off let's stop bothering these creatures he had the right to do that but he has this like pressure he puts on himself yeah. this assumed very- duty his assumed duty and peer pressure are both the things he's very vulnerable to. Cuts to Renera and Cole, and they're dragging the boar behind Cole's horse. They're going to let that boar go to waste? Hell no. No, that's Hell good no. That's good eating right there. That's going to yeah. make some lovely bacon in the morning. Yeah, don't waste it. They're looking out from a lookout onto the Kingswood. Very beautiful scene. Renera's caked in blood, and what do they see? The white stag. The white stag presents itself to Renera. Cole takes the sword out. She says, no, don't do it, and it leaves. I, me, continuing to write my high school freshman English paper. <laughs> go on, I'd like go for to that. Point egg. out the symbolism here, which is that the white stag presented itself to who should rule, who should be queen. Renera did not present itself to Viserys. Very much so. He got a mummer's dragon instead. She, on the other hand, the white stag not only just presented itself to her; it almost seemed to annoy nod. Her. It, it like nodded her. at her exactly. Roman Reigns acknowledgement. Yeah, absolutely. It did. It, I, 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 look, it's on the nose, whatever, but it it's very a much, it, it's a beautiful scene and it very much is, I think the people telling this story very pointedly telling us that whatever universe, spirit, gods, whatever you want to call it in this world do, is acknowledging that Renera should be queen. And no one else sees it. An important detail as well. Except for Sir Kristen Cole. Cuts her in error returning to camp. Everyone is concerned, weirded out, except for Harwin Strong, giving off major Tormund vibes here. Huge Tormund. Oh, the big woman. 
You could almost hear him saying it. Oh, look at I mean, her. You want to, oh. I agree, and it's hilarious. If you want a power move on Rhaenyra's part, she sold this perfectly of where she walks back into camp, doesn't ride, walks back into camp, covered in, you know, blood and viscera from the night before, and her head is high. She walks past her father's table. So the realm can see her with the boar that she killed dragging behind her. This is her making a public statement in a way that she has been lax about previously. This is her claiming and making a move for her own power and her own reputation. And for those that see it, it lands. That's a really good point, Spencer. I completely agree. I'll tell you this. One thing I'm very sad about is that I know we're only getting maybe one more episode with Millie Alcock. She has destroyed this role. She is Renera to me. Like, whenever I'm reading Fire and Blood for the rest of my life, I will be envisioning Millie Alcock. She has crushed this role. She's been one of the best cast people. And this walk, this, like, fucking bad-ass walk, the shoulders swinging and not looking at anybody, it was fantastically done. And, of course, I was cracking up at our boy Harwin Strong, giving off the Tormund vibes. uh, Yeah, I I adore... Harwin's reaction is perfect because I can totally see Har- I, I mean, this is an added scene, but man, does it feel on point for how Harwin would react if he saw that. Yeah, uh, little, I will give one spoiler about Harwin Strong. He finds Rhaenyra attractive. He's not alone. She is the realm's delight. Uh, Otto walks into, this cut to them, they return to the Red Keep. Uh, so everybody goes home. Uh, Otto walks into the nursery, sees Allison. He asks her if she enjoyed the hunt well enough. That's a no. She did not. I, uh, I I ate cake and I'm very pregnant. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm uncomfortable every. I'm uncomfortable breathing. Granddad, thank you. Or dad, thank you. He asked how his grandson fared. She says, "Well, the ladies were taken with him." He says, "Well, he should be. He's the future of the realm." Otto points out the scale of the celebration. How the men were united. The realm is speaking. That they all want Aegon as king. And I'll tell you, Allison is very reticent about this. He's finally asked her very pointedly. He says, "Don't you want your son to rule?" Allison, not even answering the question. Just Non-committal. Says, what mother wouldn't? Otto says, well, if it's a, it's a certain truth that if Renera were to, quote, step over Aegon uh-huh. to rule, the realm would tear itself apart. Well, here's the thing. Maybe, but it, you're, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. It's, it's gonna- only going to tear itself apart because you're going to participate in tearing it apart to try to get Aegon on the throne in this, in this world we're playing out. Like, Yes. You, you're you causing are this. The, the, yes, you're. It's not inevitable, Otto. You're doing it. Right. Your 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 objective of this conversation is to head off the war that you yourself are starting. So, kudos, I guess. Thank you for trying to bring about peace from the uh, you know dominoes you've already set in motion. Allison then says, "Well, we swore allegiance to Renera, even our house." Otto says that was before Aegon. Allison says, "Well, Renera would be a good queen." Funny line here from Otto: "It wouldn't matter if she were Jaehaerys himself, born again. Renera is a woman." Allison asks if she would raise her son to steal his sister's birthright. Half sister. Renera always says half sister in the books. Mm-hmm. Half sister, half brother. She points that out. Otto says it's Aegon who is being robbed. Quote, he is the first born son of the king. To deny he is heir to the throne is to assail the laws of gods and men. The road ahead is uncertain, but the end is clear. Aegon will be king. Dump, dump, dump! And as he so often does, he sends her on a mission with the end of the conversation of, and you need to convince Viserys that it's, that's a good idea. I'm going to say this. To me, the best argument that the Greens have that Serato Hightower has here 
is to point out that all throughout the land, the law is firstborn son inherits. Except in Dorne. Yeah. But Which all, isn't the land every, right now. Exactly. Everywhere they rule, it's happening every day. Someone dies, and the estate, the land, the money, the wealth, the whatever passes to the firstborn son. This is established law that if you go against that precedent, you could confuse that law and throw into question inheritance everywhere. I'm not saying I agree with this. I'm saying that is the best argument in my mind for stepping over Radera, which is really what it would be, to place Aegon on the throne. And I understand that, and it's not wrong. Male primogeniture is the way Westeros runs. Going to run even more that way later. Um, but it's not unheard of for women to at least occupy the Iron Throne, either a temporary basis or a regent basis. I mean, both of Aegon's sister wives, Rhaenyra and Viserys, they successfully ruled in his absence on his behalf, and no one had any particular qualms about that. The good Queen Alicent, she practically ruled at times almost as a co-ruler alongside Jaehaerys. And everyone was okay with that. Uh, the second but they here, never inherited the realm. I th- think that's the piece of it. Yeah, and then uh, I think it was Alyssa Valerian, who was the wife of uh, wife of Aenys Targaryen, the second Targaryen king. She was queen regent, and again, everybody was okay with that. But this isn't this is a progression. My point is, is that it has a baseline. It's not like we're coming out of nowhere with respect I agree to with this. That. I agree with that. 100%. But yeah. of course, Otto Hightower is going to frame and focus on the idea that well, we only all, all practice male primogeniture. This is unheard of. When in reality, a student of history as is, it's like unheard of is a stretch an extra step beyond anything we've done before? Sure. But we've tolerated all this previously. Are you really saying that no one's going to be okay with it that happens next time? Assumption, well, I think that sir. I think that what Viserys should have done is sat down with his master of laws and figure out like how can we make how can we rectify this, right? Cuz we how can, can we mark we, cause this cuz we yeah, cuz either we change it, we change it and say that firstborn no matter the sex is who inherits. And if you do that, then there would be a million lawsuits all throughout Restros for people who had been women who had been passed over. That you know, when someone had died, like it would just be a disaster. Yeah. In the short term, you would long term be in the right culture shifting. Maybe yeah, you would eventually be right, but it, it, in the short term, it would be a disaster. Or he could do what they in effect do in the books, which is establish that Viserys naming Rhaenyra his heir was a one-time decision that the king has authority to make. And it was not... It does not set precedent. precedent. It does not change law. It is a one-time action by a king who rules you know, unilaterally. But the king gets to pick his heir, and the king picked his heir, and all the lords agreed to it. The conversation should be done. Now, again, market that shit. Make, make this look like she's actually your heir and convince the realm of that fact. But you shouldn't have to second-guess yourself on the idea of you picked your heir, and that should be the end of the conversation. Otto then says to Allison, you must help Viserys see reason. He'll never see it on his own. Cut to Allison going to the king, who is extremely hungover. It looks like the king, probably while he was on the hunt, was doing hair of the dog in the morning to limp mm-hmm. through his language. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. seems like now he's really getting it out of his system, and he's really struggling. She says she wants to discuss something with him. The king guesses Renera. He's right. The mm-hmm. king says... Rhaenyra doesn't think, he doesn't think that Rhaenyra enjoyed Jason Lannister's company, and now she is cross. Allison, I warned you she would be. Uh-huh. Interesting line. Uh-huh. It shows that yep, they talked beforehand, and Allison still knows her friend really well, and warned the king this wouldn't work. The king says she's come of age, she has to marry. True. He says, he says her wishes in the matter are irrelevant. Allison says, 
that she thinks Rhaenyra will marry, but it needs to be her choice to do so. It, really? Rhaenyra really? needs to think. think so. Rhaenyra needs to think it's her choice to do it. And somewhat the, on point, the king it, transitions the conversation. Yeah, king points out a letter. She asks what it is. He says it's from Vaemon Valerian. This is the sea snake's brother, Vaemon Valerian. Vaemon Valerian. Alliterative. Yep, he's fighting in the Stepstones, just like all the rest of the Valerians. And, and, and look, small point, just for people who might not know, the family is V-E, Valerian. I hate George for this so much. The people that they are, the the, the area they are from that had the doom, the, the lineage that they are, a. are V-A, Valerians. These are Valerian versus Valerian. Pronounced the exact he's, same, just because George loves that. Yeah, it's confusing. Uh, so that's what I tried to explain it. She asked to see the letter. He says, sure, you can read it, which is interesting that he lets her read it. It shows that he really does take her counsel. She is in a position to influence this king. She reads it and is immediately concerned. She says, well, this says they're losing the war. It's a plea for aid. What are you doing? Viserys says, well, I'm not helping because it's a war started by two malcontents, unhappy with decisions I made. And if I now provide Damon and Corlys succor, what will that say of their king?" I think Allison is the perfect answer here. It's the, that you're a good man who loves his brother. Viserys says, "Well, if you truly believe that, dear, then you possess a generous spirit." Which so he doesn't he doesn't think that That's people will see it that way. Very dismissive, and I like that Allison seems to visibly take offense to that. She does because she's she views her role right now as counseling the king, you know, talking to him as a wife, you know, as almost like an equal in this conversation. Um, and he really did dismiss her there, but she throws down the hammer and she says, what do you believe, Viserys? Again, to my point, that in this conversation, in this moment, equals. This, is, this is husband and wife. These are equals. She calls him Viserys, not king. Mm-hmm. He says that I, this is the most telling line that Viserys says in this entire series, that I am forever doomed to anger one person and the pleasing of another. Mm. And that is, you can put it on his, you can put it on his headstone. That is the rule of King Viserys in a nutshell. Viserys summarizes a person, the great, the thing that he can never overcome about the nature of who he is and the nature of his, of his role. She then, again, not a Hightower fan, I'm Team Black, but this is a off-the-top rope, elbow right in the heart. Let's cut then the shit. Then I pose a different question. Is it better for the realm if the crab feeder thrives or is vanquished? Can we argue with that one? That's the most unbeatable core point here, is that he's hurting the realm. What other conversation we really need to have on this point? With your your pride, Viserys, is stopping you from stopping a guy who is hurting the realm. Like, that's basically what she's saying, and she, she nails this. This is so, so well done by her. It almost seems like Viserys even stopped his, like, diplomatic missions to the other free cities. Just like, he once Damon went to the Stepstones, he's just wiped his hands of the whole thing entirely. And she's like, forget your personal involvement. What is best for the realm? And obviously what's best for the realm is if the crab feeder is vanquished. So cut to Viserys giving out a, a scroll to be delivered to Dwarfstone. Rhaenyra comes in, and Viserys explains, hey, I'm telling your uncle, I'm sending help. I'm doing it. I'm doing it! I'm sending mm-hmm. help. I'm sending all the help. Vin- Rhaenyra doesn't really react, and Viserys, very self-conscious, is like, what, you don't, you don't agree with that? Uh, you, don't, you don't think that sh- uh, should do that? Huh, huh, huh? And she's like, it's not consequential what I think, as I am often reminded, still playing the petty teenager. Such an angry teen. Yeah, he says, Damon is 
thrown enough, um, thorn enough in his in his flesh. Ask her if she has uh, to do the same thing all the time. Basically, what he's saying is like, does every conversation with you have to be painful, like it is with my brother? Yes. Uh, in this moment, yeah, she again mentions the Jason Lannister thing. He finally apologizes for that, and he says, "Look, I was trying to help you. Will you not be helped? Can I not help you?" And she says, "Well." Then she finally gets to the heart of the matter. She says, "You re- you mean to replace me with Alice and Hightower's son? This is not her brother. It's Alice and Hightower's son. son, the boy you always wanted. You have him in hand now. You have no further use for me. I might as well. You might as well peddle me for what you need: a mountain stronghold or a fleet of ships." Viserys tells her that she has misjudged him, and she has. She really has. She she has, but she does point out accurately. Everyone thinks this. But she has misjudged where his, her father is going to land on this issue because he then explains to her, "I, you are going to be my heir. Yeah. I will not live forever and I wish to see you contented, happy even. And she says, what do you think a man's going to do this or whatever? And, and finally Viserys says, what would you have me do? And Renera lays the smack down. This is what we talked about earlier. She cuts through all the bullshit and she says, if it was for advantage, you would have wed Lena Valerian. And Viserys, one reason I really like this guy is when he's hit with something like that, he just says, that's true enough. It, it's a testament to him. It's man true listens enough. to counsel and when people are right, he says such. The, there, is, there is pride in the man, but it is a guy that is very much willing to admit and change his mind when presented with something. And admit fault. He says, you must marry to strengthen your own claim to show up your succession. True. But you know what? You choose. And this was the right call all along. It's to tell her, look, you like like you pointed out earlier, it benefits her to marry strategically. Mm-hmm. But it, it should be her choice. And that's where they land. should be her choice. But it's in a medieval setting. A, getting married gives her political alliances and connection with whatever else. But it also demonstrates that she has a family and a line. She can actually serve as royalty if she has kids and successors and a future attached to her as well. If it's just her... I mean, you can go Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth and market that, but that is the exception to that rule. Rene- Finally, Renera goes to get up to leave, and he says this. Renera, I did waver at one time, but I swear to you now, on your mother's memory, you will not be supplanted. Powerful line. Very Shh. much from the heart. Shh. What's the sound of the swords coming out of the sheaths? Shh. Let's yeah. go! Let's fucking fight! That's basically what Viserys is saying. Mm-hmm. And she... It is one of the most tender moments that they've clearly had in three years. Probably the most tender moment they've she had She smiles at him twice, which is more twice more than she does the rest of the episode. But they finally had an honest conversation about what each other one thought and what they should do to bolster her claim. Something that should happen day one before he got married, but at least they're having it now. I think you're going to see some, a different Viserys now. I think that he's going to start elevating her in these conversations and using her as the heir. Hope so. Me too. Cut to the stepstones. We see burning ships and dragon flying overhead, breathing fire down left and right. Sea Snake is explaining the situation. They're running out of food, Spencer. They're running, running out, of, out of food. They're running out of food. They're running out of troops. They're running out of ships. They are at the end of their logistical abilities and their restock is weeks away. This the is Triarchy knows it. Triarchy knows it. They're winning the war of attrition right now. They just have to—they don't have to win. They just have to wait for you to lose. Lenor says it's pointless. 
to keep sending the dragons. They have a foothold. The archers have the high positions. Foot soldiers hold the ground. Whenever the dragons come, they just run back in the caves. It negates the advantage of the dragons, which is exactly what J- uh, Tylen Lannister explained early on in the episode. Feynman says it's pointless to continue sending the dragons. Lanor has to has the idea to send someone there to pull them out to bait for the to have bait for the crab. Yeah, I think that this really could have been set up better. Um, but I will acknowledge that they repeatedly use dragons plural in this conversation. They do. They We've do. talked about dragon riders plural. They've talked about dragons plural. I think they would have done this a little bit better to actually show us that rather than necessarily be so much of a for what was apparently a lot of people a bit of a jarring surprise later. Sure, but it's set up. To some it degree. was absolutely a jarring surprise. It was shocking. Um, yeah, and so uh, one thing that's interesting here is that Lanor seems to have faith in Damon. He still has faith in Damon. He says Damon would, would go out. He, he volunteers Damon to be the bait for the crab. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, well, Vaman basically says, fuck him. Like, he's not, like, he's, why are we going to follow him? He's the one who's losing this war. And he actually kind of stokes a little bit of, like, Hey, everybody, don't you agree with me? He does that kind of thing. Yeah, he's he's, ra- he's rallying a mutiny kind of thing, which the sea stank calls him on. And we discussed this in the acknowledgement episode, but let's just hammer it out here. What is the plan that they are crafting right now to, de- to defeat the crab feeder? What, what, what are they trying to do with respect to this? So I think what Lanor is proposing that the sea snake likes... And what works. They ulti- what they ultimately do... But they haven't presented it to the, to the linchpin of the whole thing. Is to yeah. send Damon... And through the, like, because when they send Damon, the crab feeder can't ignore that. He yes. can't, because the opportunity to kill and capture Damon Targaryen is so big and for his part war. of the war that he has to go after it and that will pull everyone out, at which point they will come in with drag guns. Yes. And it needs to be, needs to be real. It needs to look dangerous. It needs to be Damon under threat. Otherwise, the crab feeder's not going to buy it. He's not going to commit resources in a way that he's, He's not going to play his full hand unless he thinks it actually is going to get him something out of it. I very much believe this was the plan the whole time. Absolutely, I agree. I, do. I, yes. I, I, I think we're given more than enough to conclude this was not just impromptu and everybody just followed Damon Jon Snow style. That is not how these guys play. There is parallels to the, the scene with Battle of the Bastards, right? Yes. Because you have a single person coming out. That. They're playing on it. But it was not the same because this was not someone running off half-cocked willy-nilly and stupidly like what? Jon Snow did. This was... They were part and parcel. They planned this out. And I like, it's the showrunners obviously doing an homage to it and playing on it in that regard, but it's also Damon playing on people's expectation of him. That Damon has a reputation of going off half-cocked and just doing the suicidal thing. And so to a certain degree, it plays into what they're predicting he would do anyway, to make it look all the more reasonable that, yeah, maybe he is just doing this on his own. I have to jump on this opportunity while it's here. And let me tell you this. I like, during this whole conversation, whole whole scene i like lanor valerian yeah lanor is like hey look he's like hey look we sending the dragons doesn't make sense we have to pull him out i have an idea it's his idea for how to pull him out then he also sacks his uncle up vayman he's like hey what role have you played in this war uncle other than master of complaints sea snake says enough enough he tells vayman if king's landing he basically tells grabs vayman and says blood or no blood vayman i will not have you stoke mutiny here which is a point you pointed out Damon lands on Caraxes. We get a real good shot of Caraxes' weird body. That was pretty cool. She he flew in. It, it, it flies flat, which is fun too. It's almost just like it's a little kite floating through the sky. It looks very. 
it looks particularly weightless as it flies through the air. It's a very fun style in terms of how they've picked him, how it would fly through the air. Damon walks up. He goes to the war council. Takes off his glove. It's interesting to point this entire point out this entire sequence. Damon doesn't speak a word. The only the only sentence he utters this entire episode is right at the beginning when he yells for Kragos Drehar to come out. He doesn't speak any more than that this entire episode. Mm-hmm. Um, then we see the pristine, pristinely dressed, very clean pressed suits of the men from Adam, King's Landing Adam come something. up with a scroll. Yep, they come up with a scroll and they have got a message for Damon Targaryen. I am here to save the day. Let me show you the message. Damon reads it, takes a second, hands it back, turns around, looks down, looks up, thinks for a second, grabs his helmet and beats the hell out. Literally beats the messenger. <laughs> this is taken from the books. It's a little different in the books. Damon actually beats the messenger when he when the messenger brings him news that Viserys is marrying Alicent Hightower. Yeah. When he gets that news, he beat, but it's, I think what they're saying is that this is, this is his modus operandi. Like he, yeah. he will beat the messenger. Yeah. We really don't get much about the progress of the war in the books. It's really kind of framed as, I mean, what I remember is basically is that for like three years, they kicked ass until they finally cornered crab feeder and he defeated him in an epic duel. It's really not ever framed that they were that struggling that much at this stage of the war. Shows played up what would be a logistical nightmare of actually fighting this, and you know, I'm kind of, I, I understand the change, and I can work with it well. Then we get um, Viserys reading the contents of the message, overlaid with Damon taking a single ship and going to the crab feeder. And the message is this: Brother, I have ordered ten thousand ships and two thousand men to set sail from King's Landing to join the effort in the Stepstones. Though time and circumstance have seen us estranged. Know that it is not my desire to see you fail in your cause. It is instead my hope that this aid will deliver the victory that so far evaded us. I shall pray nightly to the gods for your safe return. Does Viserys know his brothers so poorly that he thought that this would land well? Yes. That is sad. Because so obviously... this was like a. This is like Otto Hightower purposely baiting Damon. This is just like checking boxes of. This almost got him killed. Off Damon today. This almost got him killed because Damon said, "All right, now I'm going to throw the Hail Mary." Yeah, it's like, and he does it. Damon would rather die than look weak in front of his brother by accepting his brother's help to win this war right now. Yep. So he take he he goes in the single ship. He walks up among the carnage that's in front of the. The area where the crab feeder is—it is pretty gross. Under a flag of truce, let's let's acknowledge that the plan is brilliant. It works. The plan plays out beautifully. We'll debate the suicidal superhero nature of what Damon does. It's a war crime, though. It's absolutely a war crime. This is uh, this is a big deal that he that he does this under a flag. This is bread and salt. This is the bread and salt violation. This is that bad. We're we're talking about like a red a red a red wedding category at least. Yeah, he has a white flag of surrender and you know you you talked about this on the the reaction pod i thought it was really smart which is that like basically what the crab feeder is doing here he never really believes this but he he has to he sends like just enough for the next step of men like, that sends he, out just enough for the next step, just crap. enough for the next step and then damon when three men come up to take his sword take dark sister from him he pulls out a uh knife that he has in his boot. He stabs a guy, takes Stark's sister back, starts hacking everybody up and making a run for the cave. 
it's a little you have to suspend disbelief a little bit that the arrows couldn't hit him it does look like unlike Rickon Stark he's doing a little bit of zigzagging it does look like he is taking cover when he can but it's hard for me to believe an entire shore of archers couldn't hit, not one of them could hit him until the end I mean I tolerate on the basis that he does ultimately get shot but it's pretty over the top. Give him a helmet. Give him a shield. Have him take let cover him, let when him the volleys come. Let him bounce a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's, it, tough. it's hard to believe for sure. Th- this comes across more like, you know, the story that the historians would sing about his epic charge rather than what would actually happen. It, it's visually great. And Matt Smith knocks it out of the park with actually re- the, the physicality of what he brings to bear in terms of the violence and the charge and everything else associated with it. But it's not realistic at all. But yeah, whatever, and, it's still a fun And I think scene. the Battle of the Bastards actually did this better because when the archers shot, John ran inside yeah. to get away from... No, he ran inside. The first thing he did is run inside, run toward the army to get away from the archer, from the, the arrows. Hollies, yeah. yeah, and then they would come again and it kept pushing him further, further and closer and closer to the army because he had to keep running to evade the arrows. That made sense to me. This doesn't make quite as much sense. But anyway... He, uh, I, I did appreciate that, that at the end of his charge, Damon does take two arrows. He takes to the chest. two. That two was arrows. a nod of realism. That well, he takes one had... to the chest, one to the leg. Yeah, uh, and he falls down, and then he pulls out Dark Sister. He stands up. It's that it's that same seminal moment that John had in front of the Bolton army. All the crab feeders men are around him. The crab feeder keeps looking for dragons. Like he's like, this is obviously a trap, right? To- what is he really just coming here to kill himself? Okay. He keeps looking at the hill, not at the sky. And at the hill, he, he finally sees it. He sees Corliss Valerian standing there in his armor. Corliss Valerian's armor, by the way, badass. I love the halberd kind of thing Woo! that he's bringing Woo! to bear. The beautiful armor of not only him, but his knights. You can tell the knights versus the mercenaries, the ones that are wearing this pristine silver armor as they charge in. Yeah. So the reinforcements come. They come in. They battle. And uh, also another parallel to the Battle of the Bastards, right? When, when the reinforcements come, John takes off after Ramsay Bolton. In this situation, Damon Targaryen takes Just off for the crab feeder. Sprints. I, I love the crab feeder does not like, you know, rep, pulls his sword and charges in. He's going to look at this and goes... Okay, they won this one. and just kind of retreats quietly into the cave. The guy's not a fighter. He's a general. He commands by a glance and people follow him. And he's He successful. does torture. Does do torture personally? That's his one vice among probably many. But we've seen him as being a commander rather than a soldier, and I'm, I like that. We see, we see that so rarely in, in, in fantasy of where everybody has to be a good soldier or fighter to be taken seriously. This guy is commanding because he's skilled at the job, regardless of whether he can throw down with Damon and have a hope of surviving. I'm going to say that's a good call. I think that's exactly what's going on. I don't think he expects Damon to charge the cave. Damon does, however, and walks out holding the hand of half the body where he's cut the man in half. You see his entrails hanging out. Which is and a great rags visual. half the body. It's a great visual. In the book, he just takes his head. He doesn't take half the body. Yeah. But they take half the body here. Um, but during this, when the reinforcements come, there's also dragon fire. Why is there dragon fire, Spencer? Because we are introduced to the third dragon of the series. We sea get Lanor Valerian, who is on Sea Smoke uh, sea smoke is a beautiful dragon. Sea smoke looks a lot closer to Danny's dragons to me. It does, yeah. and he's blue. He's blue, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and sea smoke for those that don't know is one of the younger of the dragons. It's like 
the dragons we've seen before are proper adults. Sea Spoke's almost a juvenile. It's old enough to fly, but it's relatively tiny. It's like even smaller than Cyrax, probably. And this is in its early stages of even, you know, being on the scene. But it can spit fire. It can spit fire, and Lador has been flying it for years at this point. Now, I wish that they'd set this up a bit better, because we talked about everything we'd gotten previously on the show has been almost framing as if they'd written out entirely that the Valerians were also dragon riders. We even got a speech from the Sea Snake that seemed to very clearly say they weren't. And then suddenly he swoops in to save the day... I think they could have done a little bit better to set this up that he is a dragon rider and they're you know they've brought other dragons with them other than a few off lines, but it still makes for an impressive scene. It does. I think it's confusing to the casual why Lenor is on a dragon. I, it's confusing to me what they're doing too because I looked it up in Fire and Blood today and Fire and Blood very clearly states that the Valerians, the Valerians, House Valerian, are not dragon riders. And I think Fire and Blood... This is George, I think, just being inconsistent with respect to this issue. That That is a line, plain in the text, that doesn't make sense. We know that House Valerian, at this time, is a whole collection of dragon riders. We also know that House Valerian has been married into the Targaryens for decades, possibly even centuries. They mean, just as, as mentioned, Elizabeth Valerian was the Queen Regent. She had four children with the, with, with, with Aenys uh, Targaryen. This is not a new thing that they've been connected with the Targaryen line. So even if you, you know, work into the theory that you actually have to have Targaryen blood to be a dragon rider, they've had that for a very long time. Are you saying that the Sea Snakes kids are the first generation of dragon riders ever outside the Targaryen family since the whole Valerian? That's what they're saying. Because I struggle to believe that makes any sense. I agree. I, I struggle with it, too. But in the book, it very clearly states that Corlys Valerian, part of his reasoning for wanting to marry Rhaenys is so that his children could be dragon riders, so that they could have Targaryen blood and want to be dragon riders. If Valerians were just consistently dragon riders throughout history, that line wouldn't make any sense. So that yeah. that's another thing to consider. I, I I'm not sure what the answer is in the books. I I will say what I think I know what they're doing in the show. What they're doing in the show is they're trying to tell you that traditionally they're not dragon riders, but but his kids have 50% Targaryen in them, therefore they're riding dragons right now. And that's that's the end of that. I agree. Particularly since they seem to be framing on the show that they've never previously married into House Targaryen. So there there is none of the prior generations of connection even dating back from before the Conquest. They certainly haven't introduced that. Yeah, they haven't. I, I think they're framing it that this is a new thing. I always interpreted the line in the book as being that that is a goal of his, but it's not necessarily a novel one. It's just a means to power in the way the Sea Snake always does. But I agree. The only stated dragon riders we have from her family, other than ones that are named Targaryens, which that's a separate category, but have mixed blood, are his kids. But we got an incomplete history, so it's not clear. I agree. It's ambiguous in the book. I think the show is more clearly going for his, particularly his son, I hope his daughter before we're done, are the first generation of dragon riders of his family and outside the Targaryen line. Now, what they are, what the show is inconsistent about, and I'm willing to say that, I'm an eternal optimist here, Spencer. Yes. But it's inconsistent, is how Daemon Targaryen is able to touch the grayscale and be okay. Because we know he's okay. He's not going to get grayscale, just spoiler alert. It doesn't make any sense. The only thing you can come up with, and you did this over text, you shot this to me, you were like, well, maybe he has the case like Shireen did, where Shireen... 
didn't have a progressive case and it was not contagious. Well, the reason for that is the disease was arrested by the countless maesters that Stannis Baratheon called Dragonstone, who worked on her over a period of weeks and weeks. I doubt very seriously Kragos has had that. Plus, it seems to be an advancing case of grayscale. How the fuck he can touch the... We made a great, we made a great deal of it in the main series. When the stone men jumped on the ship and Jorah and, and Tyrion were trying to like like bully, bully around don't them. Don't touch them. Don't, don't touch, touch them. them. Don't touch. But somehow he's able to grab the guy's hand and walk him, walk him there. It's just inconsistent. It doesn't make it, sense. I was going to say, I was going to discuss this on my kind of book nerd bitching later on, but this is a scene of where there can be explanations, but what this screams to me is they made a change to a character and didn't fully ponder out the ramifications of it. Which is unfortunate because that is something. Butterfly effect. When they gave him grayscale, they didn't. Care. But but you know how they could have done it is the head. Just tell why? Him. Why didn't they put do him in it a bag? The hold him by the hair. He could have been holding him by the hair exactly. Because this is more dramatic. This is more barbaric. He's holding half a body. It's but more they do people. it at the expense of consistency. I agree. And everyone who remembers grayscale from the original series has to remember that as soon as you're touched, you have it. Now there is some discussion in some of the literature that the Targaryens are immune to certain diseases, it, that's that's a tough sell to me. Well, I mean, here's the possibility. If we want to try to justify this, here's the things we can say. Possibility number A. He's either a childhood case or an old case that has been cured or has has stopped and he's now just displaying the after effects of it, same way as Shireen. That happens. I mean, Shireen's case required a lot of medical support. It's more common among children that they're able to survive it rather than adults. And it does exist, and such people are not contagious. They're just permanently disfigured. Problem with that theory, as you noted, this does not look like a case from 30 years ago. This guy looks like he is actively suffering. It, yeah, it's red and infected looking, whereas Shireen's look like a tattoo almost. Now, it would make a lot more sense for, for Mir to give this guy this position if it wasn't an active case, because he's an active threat to every person around him if he's an active case. You, do, you don't see people around him very often. You don't. They, they maintain they, a They're a away from him, for sure. But it wouldn't necessarily make sense that give somebody with active grayscale this position. So it's more likely that it would be an inactive case and he's just rose beyond his disabilities. But... That's not how they're physically portraying it. This looks more like active grayscale along the lines we saw in Jorah. So that's, that's a mixed issue. For the, the point that you referenced about, well, there's a history of Targaryen immunity, or so at least legend about the subject of it, that made it through about King Jaehaerys in terms of the Targaryens assuming they were immune to everything, and then he lost children to, to, to plague. Then he lost a daughter to specifically grayscale. Of or one of his daughters was Megala Targaryen, who became a septa and cared for people as a nurse, and specifically cared for and treated children who had grayscale, and did so for many years. And got grayscale. She got it and died of it. Yeah. Or how about the fact that Baylor, who marched down to Dorne, walked through a pit of vipers because he thought. I guess that he was immune or something. Very much wasn't immune to the poison of the vipers. Danny, affected by Danny, it, yeah. who is Targaryen, gets the uh, shits. Has the shits for like three chapters. Like so, the Targaryens are not immune to sickness. That's so, crazy talk. That's just one of those things that like gets perpetuated with the Targaryens are closer to God than men thing. But there's so much textual evidence to support the fact that Targaryens do are not immune to disease. So this is just an inconsistency. Well, th- third possibility, just to offer it, is that. 
it is uncertain within the text how much exposure you actually need to get to get it. It's inconsistent. No one can really honestly predict it. People have been directly interacted with Stoneman before and have not gotten it. They will just test you with little pinpricks to see whether you can still feel. And many people have not gotten it as a result afterwards. So people have been exposed. As I said, we had a Targaryen that was treating kids with grayscale for years and didn't get it. So it's not necessarily one-to-one. On the other hand, we got both Jorah on the show and John Connington in the books that had one active exposure, and then they've got grayscale. Jorah barely got touched. Same Barely thing John, got touched. Same thing with John Connington, too. Like They just had a brief interaction, and that was enough that they had grayscale in a way that was serious and potentially lethal going forward. So, so this is, you know, but that, that would be such bad storytelling. To introduce a, a sickness, show how it is contagious, build in exceptions for how that's contagious, don't explain it, and then have that play out. That is yeah. terrible storytelling if, if it's number three. I agree, and... Even if it was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Targaryen, I'm resistant, and oh yeah, it's not certain, I'll get it. Damon still wouldn't have taken the risk. It's like, there's charging through an open field and accepting arrows. There's also grabbing a guy by the hand who has grayscale. One of those was necessary based on circumstances, arguably. The other one totally isn't. So, I'm with you. This, while you it's can potentially... First... Yeah, sorry, go you go ahead. You can potentially justify it. I've offered a few possibilities by which you can. But what this feels like is they made a change to a character because they thought it was cool. Again, Crabfeeder does not have grayscale in the books. He's just a mirish admiral. He's a person of nobility and standing, a mirish prince. They did this because yeah. it made him more visually apparent, more visually distinct, made him have a little bit more associated with him. And then... They, butterfly effect. Butterfly they botched effect. the landing with respect to it. You make this kind of change, you got to stick with it. And they didn't. And that's a shame. It's the first time I, I think that Ryan Condal missed one. Feels I think way. that I, I, I guarantee if you get Ryan Condal in a room and you say, okay, how is Grayscale transmitted? He would say, by touching. Like you, He would know that. I don't know what happened in the production that he, maybe he wasn't there for that maybe he wasn't around the editing for this particular part i don't know what happened but this is one that he missed that i know he knows better i know he does yeah man i'd be very curious to talk about what he originally planned here and then ways that it went off the rails because this feels like an unnecessary unforced error it's not a big deal i can just i can shrug at it but it's hopefully this is more off moment more people notice this than, than I think they would realize. Yeah. Because they recently, they, they spent seasons framing how dangerous Grayscale was, and then they just have a guy just manhandling it. it even if there's a justification for it, people are naturally going to view this as inconsistent and then hope that this is an off moment rather than a trend. And there's, like, legions of people who are online saying, oh, well, Damon has Grayscale now. And it's like, no, he doesn't. I guarantee he doesn't. No, they will never. <laughs> I mean, hell, they, they change things. It's possible that he'll get Grayscale. And guarantee. He, he, no, he doesn't have Grayscale. That's, I, that's yeah. it. Um, okay, that's the end of the episode. Let's get into a little segment we call Best Line of the Episode that I'm God Emperor of. I get to choose Best Line of the Episode. Spencer, however, loyal vassal that he is, supplies me with <laughs> I many many lines for my consideration. I prefer surf, because I acknowledge my relative relevance here, but, you know, let's go with it. Uh, first line. This is Viserys talking to his daughter. Even I do not exist above tradition and duty, Rhaenyra. I thought that was a great line. I think it, 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 it similar to some lines we get later, it really goes into just the constant burden that Viserys feels upon him, that we have our duty, we have our obligation, it doesn't matter what we want instead. Otto to Hobart. I don't know that his grace sees it so clearly. 
just establishing, you know, sort of the, the tension to come. Very much so. Uh, you basically did the entire thing already, but the entire back and forth between Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole on the subject of um, many of the realm would gladly trade positions with you, princess, but only because they've never held my position, but ending up with Kristen Cole saying, you made me a king's guard in a way no one in my family could ever hope for. That's power, my lady. Great little back and forth between the two. Rhaenyra to her father, boars scream like children when they are being slaughtered. I find it discomforting. I like it because she she insults in three different ways with one sentence. It's a genius line. Gen- very very appropriate. Uh, just a funny line, but um, Viserys is half drunk responding to uh, the Lord Lannister on the subject of, do you have dragons to offer? It's just great. It's a little, little back and forth there. Uh, more here. Let's see here. Um, line this man's the- pride has pride, Viserys, about Jason. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the girl was a heedless contrarian. If I forbade her to wed a Lannister, she'd run off with Lord Jason of spite. And then from Lord Strong, truly great, and the, well, from Zaris, truly great Targaryen king I am, powerless over a daughter of uh, seven and ten. But from Lord Strong, yeah, King Jaehaerys ruled over half a century of peace while his children drove him to the edge of madness. His daughters in particular. It's tradition, Your Grace. Beautifully done by character and actor there. I'll tell you this one. This is a finalist. It's from Alicent. To Viserys, then I pose a different question. Is it better for the realm if the crab feeder thrives or is vanquished? Absolutely. Great line there. Uh, two just speeches that we already basically said, but Lord Strong's endorsement of, of marrying into the House Valerian, beautifully done, beautiful beautiful ending in terms of pointing out the landers and the stepstones. And uh, another speech on the subject of Viserys talking with Alicent, sitting in front of the bonfire. Great semi monologue by Patty by Patty Constantine there, and very well done in terms of what tells us about Viserys as a character. Um, well, here's one: Rhaenyra to Viserys. If it was for his advantage, you would have wed Lena Valerian. Great line. Um, let's see here. Couple last ones. Uh, heh. Just because of the profound effect that it has on um, Damon, but the little reading that we got of the letter that Viserys sends to Damon could not have been better targeted to get Damon to do the thing in a way that as you noted I agree Viserys did not intend um, and yeah last one for me going off the line you just said but um, Renera, I did waver at one time but I swear to you now on your mother's memory you will not be supplanted feels like just a maxim for the next few episodes to come Great, great law options here. We're getting really good options for best line of the great episode. Ride. Great, great, yeah, for the first three episodes here. I will say I'm going to award two. I'm going to award an honorable mention and an actual winner. The honorable mention for episode three, House of the Dragon, Second Sons, is Allison Hightower talking to Viserys. Then I pose a different question: Is it better for the realm if the crab feeder thrives or is vanquished? That is the honorable mention this week. Mm-hmm. The champion this week, number one with a bullet, is has to be Renera. I did waver at one time, but I swear to you now, on your mother's memory, you will not be supplanted. Not because it's tricky writing or it's no. clever, because this is the most impactful thing said all episode. Because when he says this, he decides, okay. Like I, when he, when I, we went through the recap, I was unsheathing the sword because this sets it up because there, we know that in this episode, there's an entire contingent of people who are not going to accept Renera, who want to push Aegon. And when the king says, I will not waver, you will not be supplanted. It really puts the jets and the sharks out in the streets. 
damn straight. I think it's a wonderful line of just setting what is now going to be the tension going forward between the respective camps, but it's also just a beautiful moment between two characters finally speaking from the heart about where they're at and what they can do for each other, as a father and daughter should, but it's been just so unfortunate that for years now they've had this gulf between them, which so briefly is bridged in a way we hope can maintain. Okay, Spencer, a couple things I noticed here. So we start right out with the sigil for House Valerian. We do. Big, they want you to see it. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's everybody create that mental connection. This weird seahorse is, thing. If you, like, if you like the sea snake, it's the weird seahorse thing is your sigil. And guess what? Not five minutes into the episode, we get a Lannister. And not only do we get a Lannister, we get Rhaenyra pointing out, oh, the I knew you were a Lannister because of all the lions. Remember your we, banners, folks. <laughs> we also get... Yeah, we also get many, many shots of this Hargarian banner as we go. We also get to know the family of the Strongs very well. The Lords of Harrenhal right now. And so what it seems like we're starting to get, Spencer, is we're getting teams again. Remember when we had teams? Remember we when people had teams. their people had their wolf shirt on if they were pro Stark or their get their lion shirt on for Lannister? I always had the stag shirt on pro Baratheon, but people had their different shirts, their different houses that they could support. I think the show is allowing us to do that again. And that is so fucking cool, Spencer, because we got a con coming up in December. I think we're going to see a lot of people with House Valerian shirts on, some Lannister shirts. I think we're going to see the strong uh, sigil out there because the strongs have a, have a part to play in this story. Spencer, I must ask, is Game of Thrones back? Game of Thrones is back. I mean, we It's had, so back. We had quibbles about this episode, but I have not had this kind of water cooler discussion on the subject of episodes of television in years. Pretty much since Game of Thrones went since off Since 2019. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And everybody's talking about it. Even if they've got quibbles, even if they've got complaints for the episode, it's on everybody's tongue. Everybody wants to talk about it after the episode is done. It's exciting again to have this kind of prestige television, which we've had. There's been examples, but having this level of presence and just communal saturating the market it's great Game of Thrones is very much back and I will say at the next con if I do not see green and black banners flying in competition with each other I will be very disappointed well you're going to see at least black because you're coming with me and I'm going to be wearing black (laughs) so you're going to see at least one person in Renera black so it's going to be a lot of fun but I mean I think that that sort of like creating the different camps and it's just it, they're bringing it all back, man, and it's exactly the thing that I love so much about Game of Thrones. It's why we started this podcast network, is to talk about Game of Thrones, because every episode gave us something to talk about. I remember after Hard Home, that episode after Hard Home, we just went back and forth. I thought it was now a zombie show, and it was awful. You thought it was the best episode of television you'd ever seen, and it was just this great conversation that was sparked. And look at what we were able to do this episode. We're bickering about if Damon is touching the man and getting grayscale. And it's, we're right back into <laughs> the same type of conversation. It's awesome. I'm so happy Game of Thrones is back. Spencer, should we, should we say goodbye to all of our sweet summer children? I think we should, sir. I mean, I've gone, I've gone into aspects of book nerd bitching already. I really don't have much additional to add. I think, um, I think a little spoilery talk will be helpful this episode. I think it is time, folks, if you do not know the rest of this story, you do not know how the Dance of Dragons plays out, and you do not want to know, you do not want to be spoil, spoiled, please, uh, thank, thank you for listening. Please listen to us next week. We'll be back with you on Sunday night for a reaction pod episode four. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you next time. Okay. Continuing on. So, Damon's going to fuck Renera in the next episode, right? Uh, Damon's going to at least spread rumors that he fucked Renera in the next episode. There were hands on... There were hands, Spencer. There were hands. See the hands? I saw the hands.
It doesn't mean it's him. There could be someone else. There are other possibilities. I mean, the show's already been setting up her and Kristen Cole. And the historian's debate to what degree that actually was a thing or not. So, that yeah, in the book, I reread, I reread the, the I, this is like the third time while we've done this podcast, I've read The Dance of Dragons, Part of Fire, Blood, I read it today. So in it, there are two, three, basically two different account, main different accounts on how they ultimately fell out. One is that Renera came in, she just dropped her dress and she was like, let's go, let's Having rumble. Been trained by Damon on how to please a man. Having been trained by, and she tries this on him and he's disgusted, he says no. The second is that he actually had sex with her and he like uh, she, that that's when that's when she lost her virginity or she I don't like, really like that terminology but that's when she had sex for the first time and would you prefer maidenhead does that make it better or ugh, worse ugh, it's grosser <laughs> um, but yeah and, and then after that he um you know, uh, they, they, they had a fallout of her getting married and then setting her own roots and going separate. Well, not, but he, but even before that, he, um, well, in an effort to try to not have that be spread, he felt guilty about messing up his vows. He didn't want to be around her anymore. She caught feelings. She went off. She married Laner, and then boop, they were they, separated. And he became he became as green as green gets in the war to the point of assassinating members. Well, we have different accounts, but I prefer to adhere to the idea straight up assassinating the members of the small council in the small council chambers when they did actively. He becomes Aegon's hand of the king. He's the one who makes Aegon become king. He's the one that goes to him, basically says, dude, you gotta do this, or your half-sister's gonna kill us all. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, I, but I think, and I, I told this to you, I think what they're setting up is they're gonna scratch a lot of the the noise and the and the sort of like stretchy part of this and they're just going to get right to the heart of the matter which is and they can they can do it just by having Renera hook up with Damon Sir Kristen Cole find out he gets jealous they have a fallout and then it, it puts Damon in Renera's camp and it creates a fallout with Damon and Viserys I think it, it gets everybody on the bases they need to be on much much faster you know the room can we agree that the rumor Damon is probably going to spread this episode is that he fucked Renera? yes and that it, I think it's interest. going to be true I think it's going to be true. That stands to be seen. But it certainly would serve his interest to spread a rumor, regardless whether it happened, that he did. That Well, because in the book, he teaches her how to please a man, and then it all... Uh, it, Whatever it, the one, hell this, that this, means. This is, yeah, this is... Well, they explain exactly what it means. Yeah. Um, they, but in one telling, um, a member of the King's Guard finds Rhaenyra in bed with Damon mm-hmm. and brings them to the king. And Damon says, well, you should give me leave to marry her now. Who else would have her? Yeah. So that might be what they're going for, is that he spreads the rumor, and then he goes to Viserys, and then he goes, hey, well, I should marry her now because I've already spoiled, you know, she's already spoiled. Yeah. Hey, this is a, per- she still needs to get married. It's a perfect marriage alliance. I'm the king of the stepstones. It, bring- it brings your heirs back together and makes it undisputed that she's the legitimate heir to the throne because now she's joined with the prior male heir. It's perfect, my dude. You can see how you'd wield this as just, you know, aggressive dickish marketing the way that Damon does. So anyway, that's what I think is going to happen next episode. What Do you do you have anything left on book nerd bitching or uh, differences in the books well, you show? A question of prediction. When we get in Vagar? Do we get Vagar next episode? So we- I think that they, I think Lena will ride Vagar. You've I changed on this subject, sir. Yeah, uh, yeah, I have. And I think that it's going to be next episode. I think that we're going to see... Um, we'll be in King's Landing, and I think we're gonna see. Fuck, we're just they, they'll just see. I I, I think it's gonna be very like shocking. 
when you see it. And it will be Vagar riding in with Lena on back. We basically first get a solar eclipse as Vagar is going over. Well, they gave us, I think they gave us a shot of Vagar in the um, in the trailer. It, the legs, at least. Yeah, it seemed that way. Well, no, they, there was a shot of a dragon that looked ancient as fuck. It looked like, it looked very different. Because the rest of the dragons look, like, colorful. This one looks like it's, like, carved out of stone, almost. What? And it's a bit, way bigger, and it's sitting on top of, like, some stone stuff. And it's like, that's obviously Vagar. And I think Lena's going to be riding Vagar. And then eventually, of course, Lena dies, and Aemon takes over. Man, I'll be curious to see where they do with that. Because once they have Lena flying Vagar, rapidly she's going to become a lot of people's favorite character. And I'd be curious to see the amount of pressure that's going to be on the show writers to find a way to keep her in there somehow. Because maybe they... I mean, it's a question of how much they're willing to change the plot. Maybe she doesn't marry Damon. Maybe she doesn't have kids by Damon. Maybe she survives that and stays a character going on forward. But if you do that, good God, the butterfly effect for making those kind of changes. Yeah, I think the easiest thing to do is to just... Introduce her and then kill her. Introduce her and kill her. Absolutely. And then and then Eamon takes it. Because Eamon has to, obviously, Eamon will eventually ride Vagar because Vagar has to have that final battle. One of the best parts of the entire Dance of Dragons where he has that final battle with, with uh, uh, Damon. I mean, Eamon's got to be a character and he's got to be riding... Um, Eamon is a character and Eamon's a character this season. We see shots of him in the trailer because and he has the patch and the blonde, shock blonde hair and he had a knife in his hand. And I'm like, well, that's my guy. That's got to be him. He's got he's, he's got a knife in his be? hand. My <laughs> patch. That's Aemon. And it, certainly by the point of the end of the Dance of Dragons, he has to be riding Vagar. How we get from point A to point B stands to be seen. How they want to. But I do think Lena will. Well, uh, why else was she just throwing in conversation yeah. about Vagar with the king? They were obviously foreshadowing that. I was wrong on that. Hand up. I mean, they're either it was either a nod to the book, and then they're going to write around entirely, which I'd find imminently disappointing, but could make a certain conservative sense. Or they're going to do some version of the book, probably with slight changes to accommodate what's going to be an awesome character. Um, yeah, really. Other than me, one thing I just want to uh, just occurred to me the other day: A, do you think we will actually get the Jon Snow show that they keep on talking about? That's the first question. There'll be a follow-up from there. So yes, and you here's do? my yeah. Because here's my thinking: I don't think we were going to get it, but I think that George liked it. No, I don't think George likes it, but I think that massive. I think that the HBO coffers are going to be really opened up based on how successful this has been. I think that they were they were reticent to spend too much money on too many prequels without seeing if a prequel can succeed. By the way, this is the first time HBO has ever done a follow-on series ever. HBO has never done a follow-on series in their existence. So huh, this is new ground for them. And they wanted to see that it's now it's succeeded massively. I think they're going to greenlight a bunch of these shows. I think we're going to get 10,000 Ships. I think we're going to get Duncan Egg. I think we're going to get John Stein. I think they're going to... The coffers are shooting money out right now. That's my prediction. But I don't I don't think it was priority before the success of House of the Dragons, my guess. Well, in all of my, you know, diving into grayscale, I was reminded of Val, because she has aggressive opinions on whether Shireen and people who have survived grayscale are still contagious. Oh, yeah, Val thinks she, uh, you can't touch her, yeah. Yeah, she's unclean, and, you know, the grayscale was just sleeping, waiting to come out for later, the Great Plague in particular. Uh, do you think that they'll find a way to reintroduce Val um, if we go beyond the wall and see Jon Snow again? Maybe. Because we did, Maybe. they cut her from the, from the show, which I understood, but was, I thought, a huge loss. Feels like an opportunity to bring her in there. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I would, what I, I'm so basic. I mean, what I, I don't want it to be north of the wall. Like, I want, like, 
like Drogon is causing a lot of trouble and Bran recognizes that the only possible person who could ride Drogon is a, is the only Targaryen left and he brings Jon down to ride Drogon and then like Jon's a part of King's Landing like that's the show I want I don't know that that's what we'll get but that's what I would want I have no goddamn idea what that show is going to be and I think almost any of the ideas I've heard are probably pretty bad but no man I I, we, I think we went through a lot of the book nerd bitching already. I'm excited for what's coming in the next episodes. The fact that they've released all the titles just leaves me so damn excited for where we're going by the end of the season because, man, we're going to get far before we're done. Yeah, what's the title of the next one? I'm actually pulling it up while I'm talking to you. Because I know this one was Second Sons, and I think... Or no, this was Second of His Name. Yeah, which is referring to both Aegon and also all the Second Sons we see in the episode. Exactly. We'll uh, play on words there. Next episodes are, uh, second of his name, next one is King of the Narrow Sea, which is perfectly predictable. Perfect. Absolutely. Uh, after that, We Light the Way, High Towers, Old Town. Makes perfect sense there. Uh, the Princess and the Queen, name of one of the novellas. No debate there what that one's about. Uh, then Driftmark, then Lord of the Tides. We commented before, it seemed a little bit odd that we get two Coral's Valerian episodes. I don't know that. what that's about. That That's the confusing part to me. Everything else makes sense. I don't know what they're going to do two episodes about going back to Driftmark. Like, what the fuck is that about? I, it, it may tell me that we may get a little bit delayed in terms of showing um, Rhaenyra married into the House Valerian. Just because it, it may be a lot of time we then spend of Rhaenyra settling in, raising a family when it comes to Dragon, when it comes to uh, Dragonstone and Driftmark. Maybe. It's possible, but because otherwise I don't know why we'd have two separate episodes back-to-back. Yeah, I'm confused that. about that. And then the last two are the Green Council and the Black Queen. Yeah, absolutely. So we have the Green Council where the king lies dead for... I hope they do that. I hope, oh, I hope they do it. That Allison does that, because that, that, everybody's confused. The people who don't know the story are confused why I hate Allison. It's like, well, you're about to find out. It's and like, then, of course, the coronation. And they've released stills, by the way, of the coronation of Rhaenyra. So we've seen that scene. We, we, you can go online and see the shots of it, of her coronation, which will be in the last episode. Yeah, I mean, Allison right now is still very pleasant. She's still a very likable character. If she goes the full route of becoming Book Allison, which I can perfectly see them going in that transition eventually, that will fade rapidly. She is, at least from the books... Does anyone say Allison Hightower is their favorite character or is a likable character? Fuck no. She sucks. She certainly is portrayed that way. I think they've but done right a great now, job. Right now, she's probably got a lot of people saying that's her favorite character. And I think they'll do a good job if they're able to keep some element of that nuance going forward without compromising what the character needs to do. All right, Spencer. I think we have covered it. And anybody who a- accidentally like missed our... You know, hey, this is the spoiler section. Really got spoiled. This, God this help you. Section. This was a serious spoiler section. Well, Spencer, I look forward to all uh, all week talking to you about this show. This is the highlight of my week. I absolutely love being back in the world of Game of Thrones with you. This is an absolute blast. I know on a lot of our podcasts we fight tooth and nail. Not on this one. On this one, we're both happy to be here. I, um, anything, anything else you want to cover? Perfectly possible. I will hate the show before the end, but in the moment, in the present, it's an absolute pleasure to talk about it with you. And I will suck in all the positivity while it lasts, while I can. For now, enjoy. All right. All hail Prince Damon, King of the Stepstones. King of the Narrow Sea, the Stepstones, and all the Andals, First Men, and Roynyard that are here. That you can see or throw a rock at. <laughs> that, that is That's the... next episode. I can't wait. All right, Spencer, thanks so much. 
And thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate you taking time out of your week to analyze and break down this show with us. We will be back with you on Sunday night immediately after. What we do is we watch the episode like everybody else from 9 to 10. We record from 10 to 11, and at 11 o'clock, we got that pod out. It'll be waiting for you on Monday morning, and then we'll be back with you for the full recap of Episode 4 next Tuesday night. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you Sunday.